Welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. Today's conversation has been a long time in the making. There is no justice I can do in this introduction to Dr. Lewis Goldfrank that would convey the impact he has had not only on me, but on the world. Dr. Goldfrank is the former chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at New York University and Bellevue Hospital Center, the nation's first public hospital. He is a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences and is widely considered one of the founders of emergency medicine and medical toxicology. He has authored countless scientific articles, won numerous prestigious awards, and is the editor of the most recognized medical toxicology book in the world, Goldfrank's Toxicology, now in its 11th edition. I can say that every decision I make, literally every decision, is influenced by the teachings of Dr. Goldfrank. And I know this is also the case for anyone who has ever spent time with him. Dr. Goldfrank is a positive force in so many ways. He is one of those rare people who lives the ideals he embodies. When Dr. Goldfrank speaks, people gather to listen, and then they are inspired to act. Perhaps his greatest influence, says Rama Rao, a mentor of mine and a fellow emergency medicine physician, has been to teach us that to become a better physician, you need only to devote yourself to one task, becoming a better person. The rest, it seems, will follow. Dr. Goldfrank has been at the helm through many disasters, such as 9-11, the AIDS crisis, crack, cocaine, and opioid crises, and the tuberculosis epidemics of New York City, Hurricane Sandy, and so many more. He is the champion for the homeless and fervently believes in the worth of every single human being, which is the principle that has guided his life. Instead of trying to give you a preview of everything we spoke about in this interview, I am simply going to say this is the most intimate, detailed conversation that I have ever heard Dr. Goldfrank engage in. It is motivating, inspiring, and one that I will cherish for the remainder of my life. There is an exchange in chapter five of Through the Looking Glass, a famous children's novel by Lewis Carroll. It goes like this. The queen says, I'm just 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The queen said in a pitying tone, try again, draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes... I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Dr. Goldfrank helps you believe in impossible things. And so often he turns the impossible things into possible. 
So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Lewis Goldfrank. So I am sitting here with Dr. Lewis Goldfrank, and this has been uh, many years in the making for me. I have been wanting to do this interview with you for a long, long time, and I finally have the courage to come into your office where, believe it or not, I think it's, let's see, 2003, so 15 years ago as a fourth-year medical student, I remember sitting in this office during my interviews, and you asked me a question of why I wanted to go to Bellevue. And I had so many, so many answers in my head that I wanted to tell you, and I just kind of froze. And you had the courtesy, or or maybe you just felt bad. Uh, you went on and kind of gave me some hints in, into why I may want to come to Bellevue, and I was able to answer that question pretty easily. But I want to just say, welcome, Dr. Goldfrank. It's really, really special and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. And uh, we can do it then. Excellent. So, so much of how I make not only my decisions in medicine, but decisions in my life really come from where the foundations have started from things that you have taught me. And I know from talking to many of my colleagues and residents over the years that even years after they left residency training, how they make decisions when they're at the bedside your voice comes into their mind and what you've taught them really drives their decision making. And it's a really incredible legacy. But I want to go back many, many years and try and identify and figure out what led to your ability to do this, what has really influenced you over the years of your life. And I want to go back first to your childhood, maybe when you were around 10 years old and doing some research for this interview, I found out that your mother, and I think her name is Helen Kolodny uh, Goldfrank, she was actually hauled in front of Joe McCarthy's permanent subcommittee on investigations. And this was during really the height and really the worst of McCarthyism. It was on March 26, 1953. Which happened, I found out, to be the same day, I believe, this was just all internet research, the same day that the great African-American poet, activist, and playwright Langston Hughes testified. I'm not sure if that's the case or not, but that's what the records showed. And your mom was 40 years old at the time. I think you were around 10 years old. Yeah. Can you tell us more about this and, and kind of what you remember from it, the impact it had on you as a child, and then really how it's played a role in your life as an adult? Sure, it's a very uh, dramatic experience. Uh, my parents have been uh, very active in uh, activities, uh, union organizing. Mother and father spent a good bit of time helping with the Communist Party. And my mother spent a great deal of time uh, during the Second World War being an activist and bringing money behind the Nazi lines to support the people who were deeply threatened and to help people escape from Nazi Germany. So she did that a good bit of time. She was very successful for a while because she had blonde hair up until that time. And so she was able to fool the people on the trains that she traveled with money strapped around her body. Although near the end of that, that experience, uh, there were too many people were questioning her and ultimately decided that she wasn't safe to do that any longer. And my father and she worked on many things about uh, human rights, about support for the Spanish Civil War, you know, trying to protect people wherever they were. My mother worked as a, with the AFL-CIO. She spent as a child, did a lot of work as a young woman, time in the 
coal mines, trying to help organize, trying to help people who had a tough life and weren't getting educated. And everything my father did were really about uh, getting rights for people. She and her sister uh, did a graduation dance at high school. So they lived in Washington, which was particularly segregated. They did an integrated dance, which got them in a lot of trouble, you know, activism. And those were the uh, friends of my parents. Others were the ones that knew well, who were very progressive, very much interested in civil rights, very much in human rights, integration. They were interested in adequate health care, a host of things that didn't you know, know much about the other side of the story. I knew their side of the story. So it was when my mother was investigated by McCarthy, uh, you know, the headlines of the paper were about local writer investigated McCarthy, communist risk in the community, and was sort of an education to me about politics, not really knowing much other than all the things that seemed to be wrong with the world that my parents were working on, that others were questioning that. So we had a lot of threats on the house and on our lives. We left our house uh, and went to stay with a number of uh, families for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so. We were in and out after the hearing. So it was a very dramatic experience. But no lawyer was interested in taking a case for my mother, taking her case. So she and my father thought about someone who might be able to help. And there was my grandfather, was an immigrant from Russia when he was a young guy, and he uh, became a pharmacist. In New York, he had a pharmacy, and then he was in Washington, D.C. He had, and he got very concerned every time he made some money and got rid of the pharmacy, and so everybody came, and he fed them, and he had knew a lot of people, and as a young guy, my mother remembers, who was a law student who my grandfather paid for out of the money from the pharmacy, and that guy was the one that my mother could find to represent her in front of the committee. And you know, like most of the people at that point, she didn't want to name anybody's name, so she took the Fifth Amendment in the process. It wasn't of any benefit. She was called before them because she had books throughout USAID or typical libraries across the world. And a lot of these books were books that family was involved with. It was not the book we're looking at. Apple pie for Lewis was the questions were, why did Lewis like red apples as opposed to green apples? And so my grandmother did a lot of apple pie making out of the trees in the backyard. And there were other earlier books. My mother had written a book about insects, you know, things for science uh, for children or science for young adults. And she'd written other things about the uh, growth of a child and development and wrote about integration or wrote about the rights of people to participate in various activities and segregation. So there were uh, things that they could comment on. She didn't respond, and that was the sort of the end of the investigation. They could have called either one of them to be investigated. They were interested in that day, as you said, interested in people who were writing, people who had books. And so certainly the books they looked at, no political implications for anybody. I don't think that this was a subterfuge for anything other than just story. She wrote books about snow birthday or a kid's birthday in the countryside or things like that, about going back and living back and forth in the city, city springtime, and what it was like to go between the country and the city since we lived in the country. And so those books and most of her activities from the 40s, and there were not much else. She wrote for Time, she wrote for Life, she wrote for a number of places where she was an editorial writer, and she worked for some of the union papers earlier. But there really wasn't anything that was particularly uh, political. And by the time I was born in 1941, she ended up spending a great deal of time at home once my father came back from the Second World War. So I had a younger sister at that point. And so as we were, as mentioned earlier, we were taken out of school and we went away for a month, and it was, uh, there was a neighbor who had helped to repair my parents' home and build some addition on it. At one point, it was a, uh, a Norwegian uh, ship worker. He pitched his tent on our front yard with his gun and said he'd be there to protect us. 
we said we wouldn't tolerate that in our country for people who are supportive of uh, human rights. Right. And so it was a, a very dramatic experience. It was an awakening of the, sort of the difference between what the government was saying values were important from my perspective and what I learned as being important. And, you know, and that social environment at home changed for some time and that many of my parents' friends, you know, people didn't want to talk on the uh, telephone. They all thought they were going to be investigated. There were many people who clearly uh, were compromised by the people whose names were being used or that people just were fearful of having contact. So my youngest sister really lost her close friends. The families were very much afraid of having anybody visit with her. And my mother wasn't able to publish a book for probably a decade. People she submitted them to, they ended up being published by someone else under some other name uh, or somebody else had taken the material. So she was very angry and she'd lost a lot of time in her career. And my father didn't progress substantially in his job for a long time because of the threats. But the company he worked for was supportive to some extent. So it was very dramatic for all of us. And the friends my parents had were all very political. So those are the ones who stuck together and worked on support, people who were fighting for the retention of the passport, a guy named Corliss Lamont, certainly was a, a guy who often talked with them. They worked together on a number of things, and many others. Their friends either stayed in Mexico or went to Canada and tried to get different jobs because they felt they weren't going to have an opportunity in the United States. So it was a formative stage of to understand the politics of the time as a, a young boy. How long did this go for in your childhood? Was this something that kind of this constant threat of you're different somehow. The community you're in, you said, it sounds like wasn't as supportive. There were people in the community that were like-minded. Well, it wasn't. I would say it was a rural community. It was mm-hmm. in a place called I Thornwood see. in New York. There, I mean, very few people had similar values. We really lived in the countryside on a one-mile or two-mile road. There were a couple of families. It was one family who was a, I was quite friendly with and maybe a couple of others, but most of the people were either workers from the community or transplants to something, but it was mainly a, a mainstream Republican community. The so Republican they, back then, though, was yeah. a little different than Republican yeah, now. they were Eisenhower people yeah, or right, something yeah. like that. So there was, I remember in grade school, mm-hmm. so that would have been in the, about that time, the Eisenhower-Stevenson uh, election. So right. there, were, there were probably two of us out of a class of 25 who were pro-Stevenson, so... Was a, it was no. a big Republican community. This was a big deal politically for many people. But that's a, I'd always th- I think we lived way out in the country. There was a sense I always felt slightly as an outsider, slightly different. I think that it helped in uh, my formation as a thinker or a reader. You know, I don't remember which years uh, right. would have been reading particular books, but there were uh, the things that were different were important because in independent thinkers. I mean, I know probably by that age it. So at 13, maybe I was going to high school the next year or something like that. You know, the high school didn't teach evolution. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot about Darwin, or I got to read some of these great court cases. So mm-hmm. I read things about uh, Clarence Darrell, mm-hmm. the attorney for the damned. Yep. So was, like, lots of things I learned that were about people doing things that were different. And so I felt I didn't know a lot of people who had similar values. So I was developing through reading and thinking about it. And this taught me, in one sense, you know, that whatever I was taught in the newspapers or mm-hmm. in school was probably not the whole story. Mm-hmm. It was not the story I was interested in. So I was always quite skeptical of what I was hearing. So it left me wary. It left, certainly it was had a tremendous impact on my parents' earn a living and the way my sister was treated and ultimately. So I think that it was a critical developmental phase. It sounds like this curiosity that you developed, this idea of independent exploration, was this something that your parents kind of talked about or how did you become so curious? How did you 
understand at that young age and that there's more to the story that, you know, maybe to challenge the accepted way of, of living. I think that, um, one, there were very few neighbors, so that lots of time was spent with myself and wandering the woods, really learning about botany or zoology as I could study. My parents belonged to the Ethical Society, a humanist group, and so the few people I met there were clearly had uh, more similar values to mine. And the intellectual things we talked about were distinctly that different than that which we did in school. So there were a few people, there's certainly support, and my parents uh, went to the theater periodically to see something that was important, whether it was about like Lincoln or something, probably about Darrow or... I don't remember when I, I saw the opening of the Raisin in the Sun or something like that a little later. So the ideas about things I didn't see, we didn't, there certainly wasn't an integrated community. It was almost not integrated in any sense. And so seeing someone, uh, the only African-Americans or black people I saw at home were friends coming to my parents. There weren't any in, in the environment in the schools or things of that nature. So I was trying to learn a lot of this myself and certainly talk with my parents and their friends, but they were the friends were all people who had big political battles they were involved with or big life threats of the current political environment. So it wasn't a realistic look, but it was, it was obviously impressive education that I had to develop myself and figure out where I was going. Did your parents, you know, is there advice or things that you remember that they would tell you? What was like, the dinner conversation or, or things well, like that it was, was usually a, the dinner conversation was about politics about what was going on uh, you know whether it was the understanding the Korean War or at that point or thinking about the issues of civil rights which are developing in their friends and mine most of issues became the topic of conversation and the experiences they'd had in the past and that they were taking a low-key approach to most things. It was integrity, that the issue that you had to think these things through. You had to investigate the process. You know, you had to read. The house was filled with books, and they were big readers, and that we uh, had to discuss a number of things. But it's an evolution that they helped and stimulated and uh, talked about independent analysis of whatever you hear and whatever you believe. You have a lot of common values with the rest of the world, and you have some very independent values. So how do you develop them so you can express yourself effectively and decide what to do? And, you know, so if you do some things, played baseball or played basketball, whatever everybody else did, and then really thought about what was the responsible way to do it. So how did you relate to the community? How did you relate to your work and assignments? And, you know, ultimately, uh, you go and do something. I mean, the question of what one would do, and sort of science was very interesting to me, but... I think the background was long before I learned about uh, medicine, I'd say I don't think I had a doctor I saw a couple of times, but the issues, the things that I read, Madame Curie as a young boy or Paul the Christ's book about microbe hunters uh, were just amazing stories and things about uh, what doctors did or what scientists did. And by the time I was a little older in high school, I went to the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. There was a summer science project that I applied for and got. There were about 20 or 30 of us who went to Worcester, Massachusetts. There uh, we were going to work, have lectures. It was at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology, and uh, we stayed at a local prep school of some sort during the summer called the St. Mark's School, and we were from all over the country, 20 or 30 young people, and we got great lectures from revolutionary thinkers. It's before the NIH gave a lot of money. This was the place where people did basic research, and so my mentors there were, the, you know, Gregory Pincus, who was working on the oral contraceptive, would sit at the table and talk to us. And they had these remarkable, probably postdoctoral type people working with them, and they talked with you and gave you advice and you did things. And then we did little laboratory experiments. We went at the St. Mark's School with some 
basic science efforts. And we met a guy named N.W. Peary who was working on leaf protein for human consumption. He wanted to feed the world because he thought that was what you do, put leaf protein, which you could extract easily from whatever plants are in the community, and put it into your ravioli in Italy to deal with starvation, and you could put it into the fish if there's only one fish in the developing world someplace, or sprinkle it on your food someplace else. And you know, it was, they, the project was set up in India and uh, Ghana, and one part of the project was in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And there were places where you thought you could have an oxen grind up all whatever leaf products were around and extract the protein. And you want to save people from starvation. He was, this guy was a Malthusian, he was very worried about the world. And there was certainly lots of Kwashiorkor and Marasmus. So mm-hmm. you saw a chemistry or science leading to change in the world. You know, Gregory Pincus was getting a pill to save people from being aborted. Mm-hmm. You know, we, so we learned about abortion, how many people got abortions and who died. There were many talks like that. And so it was really, that a scientist was going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And so it fit into the idea that people had to change the world. So that's what I learned from my parents. That's what I learned from this kind of experience. And so it was just part of uh, one's responsibility to get involved and do something and think about it. So you could focus on things that were really beyond your capacity, and you develop the skills and the spirit to do this so that you could ultimately live a life like that. Thanks for sharing that. I want to move forward a few decades and you often, and I remember being a resident uh, here at Bellevue and seeing presentations that you give, and you often quote a part of the poem by uh, Emma Lazarus titled The New Colossus. It was written in, in 1883, and, and the poem was written originally to raise money for the construction of the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. In 1903, the poem it was put onto a bronze plaque and mounted inside the pedestal's lower level. And From the poem, I, I want to talk about a couple stories uh, that I've heard and see how they relate to this poem. But the New Colossus by Emma Lazarus is um, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. And this is the part that uh, is very famous. Uh, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And in preparing for this interview, I reached out to as many of your former residents uh, that I could find. And uh, I got story after story, and there's one in particular that I want to talk about because it became a theme. I'm going to read this as if I'm the resident. He wrote, One day during the early part of my fourth year of residency, Dr. Goldfrank asked if I could drop what I was doing to help him take care of a VIP that was just brought in by ambulance. As a new chief resident, feeling full of confidence in my skills, and pride for being chosen for such a task, I sprinted to keep up with Dr. Goldfrank's strides. My mind was racing as well as I formulated a picture of who this VIP possibly could be. Maybe a hospital executive, maybe a board member, a wealthy donor, a politician, an actor, an actress. Dr. Goldfrank pulled the curtain back and lying there was a homeless man who had passed out from drinking too much alcohol a man who was covered in emesis and had urinated on himself. 
My initial reaction was one of surprise and disappointment. But then I realized I had been taught yet another lesson in humanity from one of the world's greatest teachers. And this is not an uncommon story that I got. I got this kind of same concept here of caring for the people who have the hardest time caring for themselves. And this is a theme that in the 30 or so years that you've been at Bellevue that, that you've taught. I think it's about uh, everybody's a human being. And if you can teach people that everyone is uh, of value, and from a student's perspective, it's a human relationship to listen to a story, to understand what the problem is, and uh, to learn the remarkably complicated, uh, probably the pharmacology, the toxicology of alcohol, or the, the poverty of being on the street. How do you make the world better? So some days you can say, you know, what could this teach someone? Every time we see somebody of this nature, who's someone who's in the emergency department, it's about how to prevent things that we're there. What we ask probably is, why do people like to do this? Why do people learn from it? When I've interviewed someone and we have the people we get together and whoever was running the residency, we were able to select people who could take an environment such as this and rise to the occasion to do something constructive about it. You think it's working? We looked for people who could do something consequential with this experience. Not everybody should come to Bellevue. Not everybody is going to profit from it. Not everybody's going to take the learning experience well. But those are the questions try to ask everybody. Can you tolerate caring for very poor people? And that it's no sense just coming here and looking at it, at the people and the environment. It's sense coming here and leaving to change the world a little bit. It's easy to change the world, but you can't be complacent. You've got to be an activist. Everybody's got to do something wonderful with the experience. They, everything, people have to rise to a level to do something remarkable. The people need it. So you have people that were a homeless guy. So today we've got a woman who works on, who came and sat and talked in the same chair over there. And uh, Kelly Duran said she wanted to prevent homelessness. So you can't go to uh, Harvard or University of Michigan to learn about how to prevent homelessness. You gotta go to where the people are homeless. Yeah. You gotta figure out these people bring you their problems, their social determinants that a responsible person will solve. That's what uh, Gregory Pincus did about needing to create oral contraceptives. That's what uh, N.W. Perry taught me about uh, trying to uh, create food so people don't have marasmus or kwashiorkor. Virchow would say you need the doctor as the advocate of the people or you know the uh, Clarence Darrow's, the book about Clarence Darrow is about uh, the attorney for the damned. So the people we have are the people who have been neglected by society or haven't been given enough opportunity to survive and don't get enough help. So that the goal is to show people that you need this alcoholic man who's covered with uh, whatever he was covered with or whatever he had. It could be lights, it could be something. You'll learn by looking at the man, you'll see all the things that fail in our society. And by doing this and getting the skills to manage that, you have the potential to change the world. We have a guy now working with us, a guy named Ryan McCormick. He came and he sat down and he talked after he'd finished a residency at University of Maryland. He said, I want to work with impoverished alcoholics. I want to try to solve the problem uh, these guys have. And he's got people who came in here, the people who were brought in 100 times a year unconscious. He demonstrated that they did have capacity once they sobered up a little bit to, to be involved in a research protocol. They obviously ultimately agreed. There, many of them are on depot naltrexone, and they've stopped drinking, and they're functioning again. 
I think it demonstrates the problems that we've recognized by being in a public hospital. We have problems that other people have not recognized. And in the past, we've just looked at them and passed them by and not going to solve them. And I think what having emergency physicians in a public hospital in an environment with extreme poverty and neglect of the newest immigrants, the people no one else wants to deal with, who Emma Lazarus spoke about, those are the people who really teach us about life and teach us about uh, problems that we could solve. We, didn't ha we don't have to see a poor guy with a stroke if we treated his hypertension. We don't have to see someone with diabetes mellitus if we worked on the diet or we worked on getting that person insulin. We don't have to have uh, ketoacidosis presenting here. We don't have to have asthma. We could uh, effectively uh, decrease the amount of people who smoke and the level of pollution, and, and we can get people rapidly into clinics. We've developed better drugs. Every, the emergency department used to be filled with people needing treatment for asthma. Residents don't know how to treat asthmatics any longer because we've got better drugs and better access to the clinic and better communication with doctors. I mean, there's so many things that could be done, and so that my statement typically is if the world were good and we did our job well, we wouldn't need emergency departments. There'd be very few people that would need it because we could get the problem solved. So the goal of talking to people and interviewing everybody, it's uh, some would say, you know, let someone else do it. I would, I would say it's too important a job because the 15 people will come here a year or 16 people will come here a year are the people who have the commitment to try to solve the problems and suffer that they can't solve some of them and go on to make their career solving some of those problems and giving people a better chance. How do you tackle the idea of homelessness and disease, of poor diet and poor choices that people make all the time? And right, this is not a new problem. Thousands of years, people have been making bad choices. And, you know, with that philosophy, it's, it's are we just kind of patching things do we just have to wait till society arrives at that point that it's evolved so much that we could deal with these problems in a different way? Well, I mean, we didn't have when you were here or when I started in, when I when I started in the South Bronx when I was a resident there was one or two residents on 24 hours on and 24 hours off. Uh, now there are faculty everywhere. There are many more residents. There are many more systems. There are many more things being done. I mean, there's a little bit of a reason for uh, Sisyphus to be smiling at what he sees uh, going on, that we're making some progress there. But the more we do, the more we uncover, the more we have to do. So it, it will never end. I mean, just because the richest guys in the world or women in the world have tremendous problems also. We're not going to solve all the problems, but there are lots of people whose, whose lives we can make better. And so the objective is not to worry about whose life it is, but to worry about a human being who's in trouble and to try to make progress for that person. And when you get involved, if we ask every resident, find some problem you're interested in. You know, it could be uh, global health, it could be local health, it could be what we see about, uh, as opposed to Ghanaians in Ghana, it could be the Ghanaians who live here in the community. It could be drug trafficking, it could be uh, people who are... Uh, sex crimes victims. It could be whomever, and could be caring for the newest immigrants. We, here, you look at the community in which we serve and that everybody's an immigrant. That's mm -hmm. my parents, my grandparents, you know, everybody's, everybody's recently here. They're first generation, they're second generation. Uh, they're people from every nation in the world. I mean, this is an experiment in living where the patients are from everywhere and the staff come from everywhere. And they learn the excitement of uh, caring for somebody just like their grandmother or someone just like their mother who come from another country or their fathers. Just the opportunity to make the smiles on people's face when 
uh, a young resident who speaks Polish and doesn't think it's too important. She only learned it in school and doesn't know much about how to help relate to medicine, uh, is able to make someone who can't, is not going to talk on the translator phone and is scared of talking to, to some other doctor, talks to some uh, young woman who knows something about Poland and can talk about it, or someone who can speak, uh, guys I work with and people who, listen, you know, William Chang's been here translating Cantonese forever for the people who can't get a great opportunity. But so in the old days when I first came, people who were from Chinatown don't come here until they're near death. Uh, today, there are plenty of them here mm. all the time mm. because maybe we've made it a warmer environment. Maybe people speak Chinese. Maybe the mm -hmm. translator phone is better. Maybe there are some live translators. Uh, but lots of residents come and they say, you know, my uh, grandmother said if I don't maintain my Mandarin or my Bengali, um, I'm not going to be able to speak to her. So I work on it. I come to do that. That's why I come to this hospital and work. Lots of people have reasons. Right. Another story that uh, was told to me, I'm going to call it the Abraham Lincoln story here. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. And maybe there's some myth, but maybe it's there's some fact here. I think the takeaways, uh, there's certainly lessons here to take away regardless. But the Abraham Lincoln story is, like many people could relate in emergency departments, there are women and men who, who have a problem with alcoholism, are here every day or every other day, and they're recognized by the staff and knows them by name and cares for them. And, and there was one gentleman here at Bellevue in particular who was one of those who would drink a little too much and, and have to sleep it off here at Bellevue. And he would be coming here for years. And then one day, people noticed he just stopped showing up didn't know what happened to him. And maybe six months or so later, they see him. Uh, typically, when they would see him, he would be disheveled and not caring for himself when he was abusing alcohol. And this time, though, six months later, they see him, and he's well-dressed and cleaned up, and maybe a nurse or resident ask him, what happened? What changed? What's going on in your life? And he said <laughs> along the lines of, well, last time I was uh, in Bellevue, I drank too much the night before, vomited everywhere, and when I woke up, I looked up, and Abraham Lincoln was standing above me and told me to stop drinking. And from that day on, I stopped drinking. And so I thought a lot about that story and what it really means. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what uh, Dr. Goldfrank looks like, you could look him up on the web pretty easily but he does have a beard and resembles Abraham Lincoln in many ways. Uh, but the lesson to me was every interaction is an opportunity to change someone's behavior. And as a former program director and faculty member in an emergency department, it's something to constantly remind residents that every single patient, you could change a behavior. How do you maintain though, right? This isn't three years of residency, how do you maintain that approach over decades and decades of seeing these problems not going away, but still maintaining that conviction, that belief of making change? I don't think I thought about the idea of uh, burnout until I was taught by many people in these last years. But I think that uh, many of them, when we talked about burnout, had solutions for it. Some said that I'm going to spend two more minutes every single day with every patient I see, and that's where my pleasure comes in life, by doing, getting those couple of minutes. And someone else said, at the end of the day, as a uh, first-year resident, and the second-year resident, I felt that uh, I wasn't doing a good job. So I was really disgusted with what I was doing, and then I went around. I would decide I was going to say 
at the end of the shift, I was going to talk to each of the patients who were still there, who was my patient. Uh, and the patients all said, you're doing a great job. And that resident said, smiled and felt that that was really remarkable, that I really maybe was doing better than I thought. And the patients gave me a better analysis. I think that going and talking to people, that everyone has a story. The 97-year-old person has a great story. The, the three-year-old child has a great story. If you listen, and if you don't take the time to listen, it's a technical task, and no one makes any difference. In emergency department, you have to make contact with people. You have to know them. You have to feel for them. You have to understand where they're coming from and what you could do to help. Sometimes it's a good discussion. The cliche is it's a teachable moment, but everybody who we think can come here has had stories that are important and has capacity to really break a cycle sometimes, to think about it or to be changed himself or herself to become a different and better person. And so it's essential to make that bond with people. And so we talk with people of every imaginable behavior in every imaginable country in the world. You'll learn a lot and you'll change yourself. I do it because it's fun. I do it because it's, I like to walk along with that resident because it's valuable to that resident and seeing how you do it. I don't think it's difficult, but every class or every other class, we have one or two people who went into this project healthcare program we've been doing for 40 years. And those people, before they know anything about medicine, they know how to learn how to talk to people. They show that their humanism is valuable. They can make people visit to the emergency department a treasure because they talk to them, not because of what the resident did or the nurse did or others, but they take, they can spend an hour with the person talking and listening. And those people become great doctors because they've learned to listen. They've learned that they can do wonderful things even if they didn't know any medicine. And they have to learn the converse that if you know a lot of medicine and you don't talk to your patients, the patient's not as good as going to happen so that there's a combination of your humanism and your scientific methodology and your grasp of some aspects of medicine, uh, but integrating the two is essential. And so that's a, an attempt to try to teach that. I mean, if I don't do those things, then people won't believe that when I say I do them. So that's part of doing it every time. So when I go to see somebody and I've listened to the student's talk presentation or the resident's presentation, then I go to get my presentation. They've stimulated the patient to think about the process and to understand what's going on. And then I go in and ask the same question they did and I can get a different answer because they're really revved up to communicate and they understand the question better. And we get to the bottom of the process and then you get to do the exam over again and you find something that's important and you get to spend time with the patient and touching the patient and being at ease about doing that is what we're trying to do. Touch the mind and touch the, the body and accomplish the task that you really want to be on. That too often we go too fast. We're trying to be very efficient in emergency medicine. Well, I would say it's pretty hard to be efficient in the Bellevue Emergency Department with people who have never seen a doctor before. You don't speak the same language. You haven't established a rapport easily. You know, when otherwise you go into someone, if, when someone speaks French or, let's say, English, I can go in and shake hands and speak to them a good bit in language and, and break down a barrier, smile a little bit, and get going. Uh, but for people who we have to use a translator phone or we have to use other devices, it takes a longer time. And some people aren't health literate. Some people aren't whatever we need them to be to do a good quick exam. So we have to recognize that efficiency might be entering the door in the emergency department. Get them in there. Don't waste time with triage, which isn't going to help us that much. And find out if the person's sick, get the person's clothes off. And then that part of the process may to become effective. Then we have to spend a lot of time to figure out what's happening. I think. Everybody's got to do something like that, but certainly here that's essential because of the tremendous gap between 
the patient and the providers of healthcare here. We're gonna move back again and think about kind of a few of the things that we, we've spoken about here. And, and I wanna ask you about, you mentioned that you speak French and I feel like one of the crossroads in your life occurred prior to you being a doctor, but leading up to you being a doctor when you enrolled in Johns Hopkins Medical School. And I want to hear a little about this story that you've spoken about a few times, but when I think about it now, listening to what you've said, and I'll let you tell the story, but what I see here is a culmination of kind of the intersection of the lessons and kind of the resistance uh, from your parents, what you spoke about with um, leading an ethical and caring life and caring for all of humanity. And really, it sounds like this then came to a head where you were pursuing a medical career. You enrolled in Johns Hopkins Medical School. You were following your dream of being a doctor. And then what happened there? I was uh, not prepared to move from the North and the activist role I had in college and uh, civil rights or the things I was working on were worried about the Cuban battles with the United States and moving to the south was certainly south of the Mason-Dixon line. I'd just gone, just before I went to uh, Johns Hopkins, I participated in the March on Washington, and then I went to Johns Hopkins um, just a few miles away in Baltimore, and the place was uh, still uh, not integrated. And there, you know, any place you looked around, there were colored signs and there were uh, white signs, and that uh, it was the year the diversity of people I'd seen in college, or that I clearly more proximate, I think about today, and seen that there wasn't a, a single Asian in my medical school class. I don't know if there's anyone in the medical school in, in the student body. Uh, as the first African-American mm -hmm. student ever accepted Johns Hopkins was in my class. Mm -hmm. They were only allowed to have 10% of the class as women. So it was a strange world, and that uh, racism was everywhere, and everybody talked about it, and everybody acted it. And it was a strange feeling of uh, the, the things I really thought were important. And I went to the South because I thought it would be much easier to participate in civil rights activity. And I believed, uh, by that time, I was very clear, I believed in socialized medicine. And it wasn't clear that everybody had to have the rights. And, you know, that was being debated in Congress in 63 or, you know, 64, Medicaid and Medicare were about to happen. So just as I was right. starting, right. it was a tremendous discussion. We had debates, and there was no support for that at all. And there was... Uh, you know, by the time uh, trying to find my way and having a, a reasonable time of uh, drawing biochemistry or anatomy or things like that. And then Kennedy was assassinated and uh, a few months after we'd started in November, so I had just been there for two months or so, mm -hmm. three months. There were really, there were so many people who were so happy at the assassination of Kennedy that it gave you the feeling that just was, uh, where, what kind of world were we in? And so it was sort of downhill from there. I lost my belief that this could be a reasonable place to study and by the time shortly thereafter uh, you know I was called in to see the dean about being involved in a demonstration or I think he didn't want me to wear turtlenecks to class or something like that. There was discussions about how you're supposed to behave and that I was argumentative about some stuff so it just it was a different world. The guy said uh, that you're not going to succeed. I said well I thought my grades were pretty good so far because they put them up and he mm -hmm. said you know but that's uh, he said professionalism mm -hmm. is your ability to cooperate and participate in the culture of the institution or something like that. So it doesn't matter what your grades are if you can't, and professional, that's what it, being a doctor is, you have to be professional. Sounds like that's more obedient. Yeah, so <laughs> by the time uh, 
you know, I made it through that phase uh, beginning deteriorated the second half of the year, yeah. which is, I don't remember any longer. I could have been yeah. called in once more, right, right. and then I just got a letter that uh, they didn't need me anymore. So I was terminated. <laughs> at that point, um, I uh, met a guy who was a professor at the University of Brussels in philosophy, and he said the University of Brussels is called the Free University of Brussels. We really resisted the Nazis. Everybody, we believe that uh, everybody has the right to say whatever is essential to say, and that uh, you just have to come and you have to pass your exams and uh, participate in learning. So uh, my wife and daughter and I got on a uh, boat to go to, uh, after we thought about it a while, got off the boat and went off to uh, Brussels to study. And I wasn't sure. I mean, they uh, didn't give me credit for some of the classes I had taken because they said anatomy was a two-year course in Europe. We do it in much more detail. And one of the professors, the professor of anatomy was... Uh, had been at Johns Hopkins, and he didn't like the Johns Hopkins course because basically there were no lectures and it was mainly dissection. And you know, it, but he he believed you had to do it, so you got no credit for anatomy, but you got credits for some of the other things. So it was a remarkable experience. I learned to speak French well and a little bit of Dutch and or Flemish, and you know, I learned uh, about universal health care. I spoke at length with the father of a slightly older classmate who was the guy who wrote the uh, design of the Belgian uh, universal health care system uh, shortly after the war. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw it, the, the war was, you know, 20 years before, but it was still a mm-hmm. poor country just mm-hmm. trying to get together. And so it was a different life. We were treated royally as being uh, Americans, uh, as foreign students and watched out for because we had a child and then a second mm-hmm. child shortly thereafter. And I learned a lot about uh, what doctors could do. The doctors there had done, all did a lot of work in the Congo. They were ultimately kicked out of the Congo, although many of them went back to the Congo to work and participate. But they uh, talked about their racism, talked about the problems associated with that. My class, because the revolution in the Congo took place during the years I was there, uh, the classes were filled uh, with uh, Congolese students who were coming there because the university wasn't working in the Congo at that point. So uh, and they were the, met lots of people, and the, the number of African students was enormous, and the, it was a, a tremendous learning experience, a number of people from Sudan. And it became an environment where it was very uh, politically uh, interesting, and the heterogeneity of the world was there. And I learned also the, one of the most exciting times, a great course actually in public health or public policy really looked at why people got into trouble and had to come to hospitals and really talked about sanitation and housing and things of that nature. And you saw that every mother had to be checked out to see whether the home was good to bring the baby to. And you looked at these things that were preventing disease, you know, and they wanted, they didn't want a pregnant woman to go home until they'd spent seven days in the hospital and were nourished well and had to have good warm beer during the the hottest days of the year because it was good to enhance lactation. And they wanted to make sure that you knew how to take care of a baby and had to prove it. So my wife had to prove it, just like every other woman in, in Brussels had to prove it. So there was, was it a safe place to bring a baby because they weren't going to take a chance that baby wasn't going to develop well. And the, and the poorest people uh, were um, North African immigrants who lived in the same community that I did. There was an epidemic of um, meningococcemia and meningococcal uh, meningitis that occurred while I was on the pediatric rotation in the emergency department. And in a week, we had probably 30 or 40 kids who had meningitis or meningococcal sepsis, and the institution was filled with kids being treated. And it was obvious that it was the poverty of the home, that uh, the density, the people allowed so many kids to become infected locally. But it also um, taught me about emergency medicine. You know, you, in the beginning of the week, there were a couple of kids, 
and, and there were others that were subtle. And ultimately, every kid who came in uh, with a headache or looked lousy ended up getting a spinal tap very early on, and you end up picking up kids that were very sick who had no signs. And it became a pretty exciting experience in emergency medicine about what meningococcemia or meningococcal neisseria meningitides was as a disease. And so we developed a triage protocol the same way we developed triage protocols here when we're talking about diseases. And this was, there was no emergency medicine at that time. These were all people, pediatric attendings and residents working and students working in the emergency department. But it really uh, was the exceptional excitement about a a disease in the community. People study who's in the community, try to get, uh, look and look for people who might become ill, bring them to the hospital and how you responded to an epidemic. So it was exactly the kind of stimulus that I and several of my coworkers, who were friends for until one of them died recently, the three or four of us who, who all became very excited about emergency medicine. It didn't exist in America, it didn't exist there, but that close friend became the head of the pediatric emergency and the other coworker became a critical care worker. So that I think that epidemic transformed several of us. And at the same time, in that year or the subsequent year, that year, I guess, the educational revolution was going on in Europe in 1968, really looking at what was medicine serving the people? Why didn't the faculty work full-time in the hospital? Why weren't the supervision for us when we wanted it? Why do we only work in the morning? Why, what if we wanted to go to the afternoon? We wanted to work with faculty. We should be better taught. We should be taught at the bedside. host of issues that really were principles that I think I lived with, and many did across uh, Europe, but those were principles that I think I brought back and really began to use as political strategy once again to develop what medicine should be. And so that's how I developed my strategies to change emergency care or create emergency care in America through the experiences that I really had in those days. So your experience in medical school in Belgium, you feel like shaped, or at least really was a spark to identifying the ability to maybe treat patients in an emergent way, and then from Belgium you came to the Bronx, or yeah, I stopped. Uh, yeah, you, I you were in Connecticut, I think. I went right? to Connecticut, yeah. the University of Connecticut, in Mount Sinai Hospital. There, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because right. I didn't. I was a conscientious objector, but I had not mm. been uh, certified as one. It was going through appeals, and when I <laughs> left the country, I didn't follow up with the draft board. When I got back, I had to work again on that. But, what uh, year was this around? I returned yeah. in 1970. 70. So all the yeah. people in the residencies that I returned to yeah. were all taking the plan called the Berry Plan to uh-huh. avoid and to finish their studies before they went into the military. I had refused to go into the Army. I said the, as a member of the Ethical Culture Society, well, right. they, I think the guy talked to me said since there's, when I had to go to my appeal board, since I think since it doesn't have a God, it's not a religion, right. was what he was worried about. Right. And, it, and so then he, I said it was a value that it's... Uh, I, I did not believe that war was good. I did not believe this particular war was good. Right. So I, when I left Connecticut, I spent a year in Connecticut, and I had my capacity to go back to, we had the capacity to go back to Belgium to um, to work if I had to do that, but I also thought about going to Canada, and we, so I decided I needed to go someplace which would be in a health manpower-deprived area, which mm. the relationship between Montefiore and Morrisaney in the South right. Bronx was. That's where I really began to understand emergency medicine. Uh, there were just interns doing this job, and by the time I was in my second year, began to write a draft of a protocol to become the director of the emergency department in this place and to 
talk with the chief of medicine who was very supportive of that and what I was doing. And so that once I got back to the United States, I thought that became a way to realize what I had to do. I, I didn't know how to do it. I mm -hmm. had some ideas, and uh, they gave me a lot of leeway to start to develop it. So once you kind of found this passion, this cause, what were some of the early steps you took to, I mean, right, because we look back on it, it may seem obvious, and it wasn't obvious at the time, because there was no real specialty at the time. And the way emergency medicine formed, I feel like it was you know, groups of people around the country working independent of one another, not necessarily knowing what they were all doing. What were kind of the real early phases of recognizing that this is a specialty itself and well you didn't have anybody else to talk with there wasn't anybody else right. doing the same stuff there were there were probably a few people in the public hospitals here in new york city sheldon jacobson at uh -huh. jacoby uh kind of ralph altman in metropolitan um i didn't know many other people and there wasn't much communication strategy i started at you know in, at more this morrisani city hospital was a hundred thousand visit ED in the South Bronx, and it uh, done been there as a resident. But you know, you went in and you did your shifts. You were uh, alone. You know, there wasn't any supervision. There was an overwhelming demand going on continuously, and it was just one patient after the next. And everybody had an heroin overdose, or everybody fell out of a building, or had a car crash. Or, and the surgical team was recently back. A number of them from Vietnam, and so there was a surgical attending team, and we were beginning to do that. And we then rapidly hired people who were going to try to offer the kind of supervision. The hospital had a number of great physicians in various areas, and we were all looking at these overwhelming problems. And they asked, what are you going to do for emergency medicine? That's what the chair of medicine said who gave me the job, this fellow Dave Hammerman. And so I said, well, give me a month, and I'll figure out what I'm going to teach about uh, once a month at least to talk to the house staff. And so I decided uh, I didn't know, but I'd already seen... Uh, 10 cases of heroin overdose and, uh, you know, a thousand cases of polydrug overdoses in the first month. I mean, mm -hmm. just, and so I said, I'd do a toxin a mm -hmm. month or I'd do a story mm -hmm. a month on each mm -hmm. toxin. And, and that began the, mm -hmm. what our textbook became mm -hmm. just uh, collecting. Uh, I had to, I developed it well. I mean, there wasn't uh, anything. You couldn't go online anywhere. No one was talking about these things. There weren't any textbooks about toxicology. So I created very early on a volunteer system because there weren't enough nurses and doctors. So I got high school kids from the community with a person who was running the uh, volunteer office. And I said, give me everything that says about heroin. Then give me the next, about, I had a case of methanol. So get me, go to the library and go to the Index Medicus and find these things and mm -hmm. let's get that stuff together so I can have stuff to read. I don't mm -hmm. know where to go to find mm -hmm. things about mm -hmm. it. Everybody, everybody has, there's some forensic toxicology, but there's no clinical toxicology of uh, under these circumstances. And so... I had to do things. It was obviously I had to find a way to get the story from patients. People were waiting so much in various places, so I couldn't get anybody to build things. It was a regular public hospital, committed people, but they didn't have time to come and build something. So one weekend, it was uh, my oldest daughter and I came in, and we put up four walls of something in the middle of the emergency department with some of the staff, and we created that was going to be our triage booth to start there had never been that. And, you know, where the, the ambulance people weren't trained yet. They hadn't gone through any courses. We began in the, the mid-1970s to develop training for advanced life support or training for paramedics. There'd never been a course on uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The American Heart Association was just starting, so they really these things were just happening. And so uh, I think we knew that the different types of people, but I kept the log of everything that was going on to the best of my ability, who was happening, 
what kind of problems did we have? What was the cause? People fell out of buildings, kids fell out of buildings, and you know, then there was an active group of pediatricians in the group that worked on their, uh, that particular time was children can't fly, so you had to put up window guards. That became part of the process. And everybody was thinking the way it was obvious to me, I thought, in Brussels, that everything had a cause, and everything you saw you could correct by a social action. So the government was a way to solve these problems. And so how would, when everybody began to work then together, and there were a host of groups of, you know, social activists, and really no one else was interested in the South Bronx except the people. It was a tough place to live. Uh, there was a lot of violence, lots of drugs, tremendous amount of poverty. And then how did you work on it? And so I had to work with everyone who was there. So the clerks taught the clerks about hypertension and diabetes, taught the registrars, taught the guy who was the security guard. Everybody was involved in the education. There weren't any other people to teach. You'd teach a few residents, you'd work with a few of the people, uh, and we began to work with the outpatient department. And, and everybody, we worked on special relationships, but everybody had to, who had hypertension, diabetes, congestive heart failure, and asthma had to get into the clinic the next day or two days. And the doctor who saw them, we ended up with the residents that were gonna follow that person up or the nurse practitioners that we had. So we ended up doing things that seemed logical for the people, but they were the same problems we're dealing with today. It was easy to solve it. And in three years of doing that, we saw, we published a paper, I think in the archives of internal medicine, about showing that there's a decreased admission rate for hypertension, asthma, congestive heart failure, and diabetes when you have ready access to an outpatient department. And we had the people there to do something like that. So there were simple things that, that seemed obvious and you could flow, and I wasn't sure whether emergency medicine, residency, I didn't, I didn't even know enough about to think about it, right. but, but I knew that the people who saw, if you had seatbelts on, we already recognized you had a problem. Everybody, no one had seatbelts. They didn't exist on most cars. They didn't have any tempered glass. Everybody had glass in them all over the place when they had a crash. There were also of things you learned. If the vehicle flipped over, yes, you had to watch everybody else, even if the person, only one person was dead. Because we didn't have enough evidence, uh, we had right. opinions based upon these things. But there were always patients everywhere. And there wasn't enough space, there wasn't enough knowledge, but there were a lot of people who were interested. You know, residents became interested, but you try to get organized. I try to say, I'm going to do rounds every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, go over all the cases. And I want to go over each case with you before you go home at the end of the shift. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that took, always took a long time because they didn't know anything and I was reading up on what the cases were and they would say, well, that's not right. You have to do this. You have mm -hmm. to use your thiamine. Mm -hmm. If the guy's become as alcoholic hypoglycemia, he's not going to go home. He has no glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. So I'd have to defend and explain that to people. And then so that then they would learn to discharge people at 6.30. So there was no one there when mm -hmm. I got there at 7 o'clock. So I'd come in at 6.30 and we'd do the same thing. So it was, it was a matter of... Uh, it's the same problems that, that yeah. you have forever and that people weren't adjusted to having supervision. They had always done it themselves. They'd learned a lot right. in theory, but they didn't want to be get this kind of education. There wasn't this kind of intense supervision that was essential. Is that how Bellevue during residency, we had morning report, we had walking rounds, which was something I tried to implement when I became program director, but it was never as successful. Was that a carryover from when you first started working in? Well, in, I mean, the that's where those. I think that's the way we did it in uh, in Europe. You know, you walked to the bedside and you talked to every patient, and you looked at the, f the fever chart at the end, and you looked at the results that were there, 
And so that was probably done on a surgical or it was on a pediatric ward. It was done every place. So there was no reason you shouldn't do that in the emergency department. You couldn't do it any other way. So it was just a standard. And people had certainly hadn't done it because there wasn't anybody to walk around with them in the past. When I started, there w- I was the intern on at night and someone was going to take over in the morning. Or there were two interns and someone took over in the morning. There was no supervision. So when I was added, I was the first attending in that emergency department on a full-time basis. And so it became, it was what I was going to try to do. And so I went over every case. And when I got other people to come, we discussed the cases with people. That was your only time to teach the residents because they were going to go off and they would go to sleep. And so in those days, they didn't go to sleep right when they finished. It was very hard. I mean, we were on either, when I was there, we were on 24 hours. Then by the time I got, I said we would have 12-hour shifts. Mm -hmm. And we would, at the end of the time, we would do rounds. Mm -hmm. I think for anyone who's attended Bellevue as a resident or has rotated through here, a morning report is, has always been a highlight here. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's every day before every shift, day, except conference days, yeah, except right? Except the conference days, Where uh, kind of a senior resident reports yes. on a case and you get input from other residents or anyone in the room, really. Uh, and there are a number of people who come. All of them. Neil Lewin is still there every uh, morning. Uh, you know, and there are other people. Marion Allen, the clinical pharmacist right. who yeah. started the day I came to Bellevue. Oh, she, uh, she came. She, she was set up to go be on the cardiology service. Uh-huh. She was from St. John's University. Uh-huh. They were offering right. her free, a clinical pharmacist, to right. be on this. And Richard Wiseman, who came on that day, yep. his day started also. He, that same day that I started in Bellevue in, like, in October mm-hmm. of... Uh, 1979, Richard Wiseman was supposed to be on the statute of gynecology service, Uh but they were both from St. John's University Uh that didn't, that prohibited them to be involved with any abortions. Uh So they left their floors, the the cardiology floor. The the cardiologist said, this isn't necessary. We don't need anybody to help us do cardiology. We're the best clinical pharmacologist of our stuff. He had, Richard Wiseman had to leave because his school wasn't going to let him bring students to the obstetrics floor. So they came down and I didn't know them as yet, but they were both interested in toxicology, so they'd read maybe the second edition of our textbook. Uh-huh. They came in, they said, uh, how are you? I don't have a job. Uh-huh. Uh, I said, well, you can both have jobs with me immediately. They were paid by St. John's, whatever their salary was was covered. I said, one of you can be at the Boyden Center with me, and one of you can work here in the emergency department. Right. You're hired, and you can bring the students here anytime right. you want. Right. So that's how we got started. Marion Allen yeah. comes from Trenton, New Jersey, by train That's every right. day and sits down in, and goes to conference and then teaches all day long at the Boyden Center and then goes back home. I used to see her on the train from yes. time to time yeah. as a student coming from New Jersey. Yeah. Let's just circle back real quick to Gold Frank's toxicology book. That's been, uh, you alluded to kind of how it started by putting together some maybe uh, case reports when you're in the South Bronx and I believe you're working on now, which edition? The 11th. The 11th edition. And you've had input from hundreds or probably thousands of toxicologists and people uh, have contributed to that book. Do you think it was more of circumstance that you started practicing in the South Bronx and these pathologies were present and this is what you were seeing that led you into toxicology? Or do you think there was a predilection that you had that attracted you to toxicology because I think when you know a large part of of how you're defined as a clinician and your contributions a large part of that is your contribution to the field of toxicology is that something that started just by circumstance? I was interested in toxic plants as a child I was interested in plants I did a lot of reading in botany I I loved botany in college Uh, 
I had an NSF grant, National Science Foundation grant, working on uh, cobalt species. The fellow was interested in whether it might be related to something mm -hmm. like rheumatoid arthritis, and I worked on cobalt toxicology for a while in mm -hmm. college. So I uh, loved botany, and I saw an awful lot living in the woods and mm -hmm. thinking about what was poisonous and what mm -hmm. wasn't, and I uh, had these experiences. And we had uh, you know, a number of, of terrible poisonings in complex situations when I was in Brussels. I can mm -hmm. see that. Alcoholism was prevalent, so I, I, I think I, it was an interest, and I could look up other things in books in the South Bronx that had to do with internal medicine or that had to do with surgical issues as I was learning them, but there wasn't any place to look up the toxicology. So, And the other thing is that the epidemic of heroin, the epidemic mm -hmm. had been going on for some time, and we had the number of overdoses was overwhelming, and it was just... Naloxone was just released, and mm. the people in the laboratory at mm -hmm. Einstein were using it. Mm -hmm. It had just become approved, wow. and we were among the first places in the world using naloxone. Right. So really began to use it, and it was remarkable with the lives we saved. Yep. Everybody, people weren't on methadone then. Yep. Naloxone was a big asset the way it is yep. today, and people aren't using right. some other long-acting long -acting preparation. So it was just... We didn't know how to intubate people very well. We didn't have great equipment. Right. You know, you didn't have fiber optic devices. You didn't right. have uh, video-assisted efforts. Right. You right. Uh, and you didn't have much in the way of technology. Right. So it was very difficult for everyone. People hadn't the training. I hadn't had any training. I'd had a little bit of training, but not much. And so this wasn't easy to do. So it was remarkable that we did begin this basic life support discussion. So bag valve mask was available. And so naloxone was something that we used very commonly. You didn't really have any methadone to worry about at that point. So people didn't have dramatic withdrawal. They had short-term withdrawal that they might have if they were on heroin. Right. And so it, it changed the course of human events in the South Bronx and saved lives. Mm. It became a big deal. And then the thought about the other toxins we began to see. And so it was an uncharted territory in the midst of it. I mean, I, I had to learn all the other stuff. Right. But this was one that no one else was interested in. Right, right. And how would you compare the opioid crisis of the 70s and 80s would you consider, I mean, was it a crisis then, or well, was it, was it just... It was a tremendous yeah. number of deaths, tremendous. Yeah. And the people were just dropped. In those days, uh, there was a Rockefeller had... Uh -huh, uh, yeah. The standard was you're yeah. supposed to report people immediately, anybody who's using heroin. Right. So the few people we knew in the city, everyone agreed we're not going to report anybody. Uh -huh. that, would be, that would chase people away. Uh -huh. Already, people were just dropped on the, on the doorstep uh -huh. because there weren't ambulances to pick people up, right. and they didn't want to be seen with the person because they'd be arrested. Right. So it was a battle. But ultimately, they gave us, the state government gave us addiction counselors who would walk people from the emergency department to a detox center uh, right after they had either came in in withdrawal or people who had just overdosed and then stabilized. Because so it was a, we were already thinking about continuity of care and right. trying to do some harm reduction, getting people places. And they took them, whether it did much good. In those days, I was optimistic right. that detoxification was going to help. Right. Today, I wouldn't have that optimism right. at all. Right. Now, now I, I spent time working in Portsmouth, Ohio, which is really the start of the pill mills and what some people consider the main driver of the current opioid sure. epidemic. What lessons can we take from the 70s and 80s or to apply now? I mean, is there any lesson? You know, I, I would say that those of us who worked in the South Bronx or here, and when I got here in the late 70s, where there's still heroin was going on, and these people are using lots of heroin, is that most of the people we saw were poor uh, people or African-Americans or Hispanics from the South mm. Bronx. So all the papers were about that. Right. And everybody assumed that this was a problem of color. Right. 
and you couldn't get a strong opioid. They didn't exist yet at this time right. in pill right. form or right. any other form. Right. So that we never had opioids of any consequence available right. to people. Right. So they weren't using that. And what the inherited bias that probably saved African-Americans' lives was that there was a level of racism, maybe in not giving people who were of color right. enough right. opioid right. that no one wanted to give them right. more drugs that were going to foster this epidemic, right. the old epidemic. Wow. And so it was the rich or the people yep. in Vermont and New Hampshire yep. and Staten yep. Island as opposed to the South Bronx yep. or West Virginia who were used getting these pills and they were yep. being prescribed them. And many of them, conceivably, there were people who were doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do. Right. But they obviously, the design of those molecules was inherently catastrophic right. for the ability to resist a dependency. Wow. So I think that we now have a problem that's comparable. Had it not been for the election of Trump, probably with Obama's effort and Holder's effort, there would have been right. really dramatic changes mm -hmm. in how we deal with substance dependency. And presumably that's got to come because the only solution is you can cut down on all the opioids that people are prescribing, but that's gonna tip large numbers of people into withdrawal who go to fentanyl and go to heroin. So you're gonna to have to work on decreasing the numbers. You're gonna to have to find solutions and you know, you're gonna transform a lot of people into people on buprenorphine or naltrexone or methadone to get through this epidemic where the plasticity of the brain has just become dependent and the people are very low success rate to become to develop abstinence. I don't know, 5% maybe I'd say today, whereas I used to think I was optimistic. Right. So it's 2018, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but what do you think is going to happen with this current opioid epidemic in, say, three years, five years? Are we going to be in a better place? What's it going to look like? I mean, What do you uh, think it's going to look like? You know, like? it's interesting. I have a... Uh, I teach a class to the students who rotate in the emergency department. So almost everybody in the medical school does, let's say. And then we get a lot of outside rotators. And so I do a sort of a two-hour symposium where we all talk, the 15 or 20 people are on each month. They talk about their experience with opioids in their community or for them as adolescents or them as young adults. Or talk. And there's always someone who talks about a next-door neighbor who died right. or a right. brother died or friends who's in been treatment or the fact that they were on medication for something for dental extractant or for a sports injury and were getting opioids for too long and really right. felt they were on the verge of becoming dependent and how it's disrupted people. So everybody's got a story and the way they tell, you know, how some people say, well, we're having an opioid free emergency department right. and they see patients suffering right. because they had, need opioids. Right. So I don't think I mean, I didn't have that kind of lecture when I was a student, right. and people didn't have that up until recently. So I think that's the kind of thing that's probably mandatory uh -huh. in every training site in America. And, you know, we have grants. We have people working on here we've been doing for a decade or 15 years, you know, working on treating the people, giving, sending people home with naloxone, working on getting it out into the community, working on education. Uh, we have some of our people who came here to work on mini medical school in the community, a guy named Aaron Holtgren or something, right. going out and teaching kids in grade school right. about drug risk and someone else, Larissa Laskowski, a toxicology mm -hmm. fellow, very committed, you know, is also one of our residents who's out teaching kids about all of the drugs that are at high risk. So we're doing a lot of stuff. We're doing in the pipeline of education is going down into the schools, it's going off into the community. You know, we have a lot of symposia about it. I mean, everybody's talking about it and things are changing. I mean, the doctors, and dentists and whomever we're using so many right. things are stopping. So I think it will be better, but we're going to have a population who's like right. an, an AIDS epidemic yep, yep. where it was terrible and right. then people were stabilized and they thought they'd never live and then they're living and how do we get them to the next right. stage? So I think doctors have changed right. and 
I think it's, it's, it's valuable when your next door neighbor is also on drugs and causing a lot of trouble. You recognize it's not color. These drugs were universally designed to keep the <laughs> opioid concentration such that people became dependent very effectively. Right. Yeah. So I think you probably turn the corner as far as the providers go, and there'll be some little lag time before society feels those uh, effects overall with the crisis. I think they're going to have a lot of, I mean, it it depends on what they do with regard to opioids for the Medicare population. They want to cut back on delivery. So what is going to happen? They're going to go into withdrawal. We've seen people in their 70s who are out using heroin today. So I think they'll, we'll have a tremendous problems, but at least people are talking about it and some are doing something about it. And we have some reasonable depo treatments, naloxone, excuse me, naltrexone and buprenorphine. So we need a lot of creativity. You're going to need more support. You're going to need more protection for people. And, but I think there's much more openness to action because I think everyone's seen, even a guy like Pence or someone else mm-hmm. like that has seen that you can have crises in Indiana. Yeah, right. It just doesn't happen in the inner gotcha. city. So in a few hours, you're going to be doing something you've done probably for 30 or 40 years, most days of the week. You're going to walk from Bellevue to Grand Central Terminal. You've been doing this walk day in, day out. Tell us about why do you walk? What do you think about when you're walking? What's that part of your day like? When I had uh, kids at home and a wife at home, mm-hmm. we'd had to give me a chance to think through all the stuff I had to do and to mm-hmm. uh, get some peaceful time about doing it. I knew that I was going to be in the country and mm-hmm. I could relax and think about it uh, with family and then have a very calm place where there's no sounds and uh, to figure out except the owls maybe or the mm-hmm. spring peepers and things like that. And the walk, in the, it uh, makes you think about who's on the street, what kind of problems are there. You go past a sign that's selling uh, you know, jewels for uh, sixteen fifty for a package, and you recognize that what some thought was going to be good to help mature people uh, who are smokers get off smoking, and you worry about whether they don't get it off, and then they're getting worse deal because they're getting nicotine and high mm-hmm. concentration and the smoke. Or you think about the kids who are buying these up and the same marketing as with opioids. So that reminds you of stuff. You see uh, poverty. Uh, you see affluence. Um, and then uh, you feel the weather. You know what it means when you're coming in when it's uh, so hot you can't bear it and people are dying because it's uh, heat stroke. And it's, you see uh, the winter when it's so cold and people are freezing. And you know we created out of emergency medicine here in the city. You know we're able to convince Koch that you know you have a cold emergency in the winter that if the wind chill factor is below 32, then you should put people up for the option of either going to the shelter here and across the city or if they refuse the shelter they can't sleep on the street they're brought to Bellevue Hospital because they probably don't have capacity so they're offered something there there probably are others who shouldn't go to either but you can't tell it's too high a risk Uh, and so we do that and you do the same thing and you can't let people sleep on a hot tin roof when it's 100 degrees outside and so you really bring people in you know we think about kind of compensated schizophrenic who's got 12 blankets on as a blanket man who mm-hmm. lives uh, and he survives the winter because mm-hmm. he's that and then he doesn't know to take it off in the spring and right. gets heat stroke so I mean you see the things that happen you see the kind of injuries you recognize where the crashes are in the streets in the crosswalk you recognize the speed people go or they're not enough you change they've done a lot to change the timing of crosswalks uh, based upon the intensity of traffic and right. You know, and we have a lot of studies. Steve Wall's doing a lot of epidemiologic studies on who are the people in traffic crashes, where do they occur, what's going on, what are the bike troubles, are the bike lanes good? It's part of our research. 
in the process. So that I think you see the problems of the world on the street and you then want to do that kind of research through the patients we get here. That's a great way to kind of think about that walk. And when you get on the train, what's that train ride like? Do you read the paper? Do you read a book? Do you listen to music? Mm, no. I, in the morning I read the New York Times faithfully and I like to look out. The water is beautiful. I sit on the Hudson River side. It's amazing. It's a one, two, three, or four mile wide river that's a quite beautiful to look at and uh, I'm always doing something. I don't usually try to sleep on the train. I try to do something, whether it's to read the journal articles for tomorrow's mm -hmm. conference or whether it's for uh, something that I'm writing and working on, getting this up together. It's a good, quiet time to read and so it's very useful. I don't, I mean, I think anybody else is going to be studying at some point during the day so that I build that in and those are my study times to do things and to think about, uh, you know, reading the New York Times, uh, you read a lot about what's going on in the city, the problems that are going on, who's the person to get the information to, to see how they presented some medical problem effectively, you know. You're known to be an uh, incredibly efficient and effective worker as far as juggling uh, so many different projects at a time. And people comment, I've heard that, and this is probably not true, but no matter what time of day it is, they send you an email and they get an email back within five minutes. And, but yet we never see you, or at least I never used to see you on any devices. <laughs> so we always wondered who was sending these emails. Probably Joan helped. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a system, um, a way that you've been able to be so productive? Is there anything that, any advice or uh, anything that people could think about or... Well, I think the, you know, I have a good job. You know, you get to help people every day. Yeah. You get to teach people who are going to help other people. And so it's easy to be invested in the people you work with in a place like this because uh -huh. everybody's got to do something uh, valuable. And no one can succeed, as we mentioned earlier. The problems are too tough. So I need people to carry on continuously. So you don't want to not stimulate people who could go on to make the world a little better. I mean, it's like preparing for the future the job won't be finished and that each new generation has more knowledge and has tremendous creativity to change the world a little bit so it seems as though you can have an impact i mean if you pay attention to people and talk to people and listen to them, see what their needs are see what they're thinking about you know i write when i've got an idea of a pad that stays on my desk forever that's got all the things that bother me and right. it keeps getting updated and i use those things and so I've got little names next to them of people who I think might take on that project and talk about it several times, and then someone picks it up. Can you just tell us a little more about this system? When you say a pad, is it one of the... Just a the, piece of paper. yellow pads? That, I have uh, a yellow, just a yellow pad. I, so I carry a yellow you. pad with right. me. I write stuff down when I see a case or we talk about right. it. So, you know, when I, if I'm going to have to talk, make a... Uh, an ethics presentation right. in a few months. Right. I will have picked up the cases and talking to people uh, about it, and I've got their names next to it. I'm going to use them to present the case, and then we're going to teach the others. They're going to study that particular problem. Uh, the others are big projects. I mean, it always was homelessness or was alcoholism and one type of problem or another or looking for things, and so I find the people find the right person to tackle a problem. They're looking for some, something or somebody's got an interest so that we can transmit knowledge and we can understand something that no one's yet been able to grasp. Yeah. Do you maintain, do you keep these notes, these pads, these, uh, these ideas no. that you've written down over I, 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 every, uh, The ideas that aren't allocated to someone to yeah. work on, they're still there. They're still there. How <laughs> long is that list? 
Oh, yeah. you know, it's a page or yeah. two, or pages yeah. of yeah. big things, and then they're integrated, and then yeah. people are taking on parts of them. I mean, I think that I told you this book that Maria Raven and Kelly Duran are working on. Those problems have been there. They've taken them over. Right. I mean, they're devoted, creative people trying to solve the same problems I was. And so they helped me a great deal while they were here. And there are many others who are doing these kind of things. This Ryan McCormick story. I mean, everybody's taking them. You know, yeah. and your friend Phil Levy's working on hypertension and right. the inner city and congestive heart failure. I mean, these are uh, totally preventable problems if we did our job well. And the guy I worked with when I was at Montefiore, a guy named Richard Cooper, who was very interested in racism and very interested in the African diaspora, he and I ran into each other working on the same project in Ghana. He and I have been spending time together again. He's, the, I think, the uh, chair of epidemiology in Loyola College in Chicago. And we're linked with a third guy who also, he and I were residents together in Montefiore. And the guy who's the link is a fellow who is now in the population health program, a guy named Benga Ogadegbi, who's come from the Nigeria and is a real scholar and working on his goal. He collaborates with, let's say, Steve Wall, another guy we have here. They collaborate with doing uh, good healthcare work in the mosques or in the churches or in the barbershops. So that it's the kind of thing of, of solving this problem of hypertension, solving this problem of untreated disease, thinking about, you know, you need an army of people with all sorts of different strategies, not something I wouldn't have thought about using the barbershop, I wouldn't have thought mm -hmm. about using the mosque, mm -hmm. but other people who have religious experience or have a better modern understanding where you have to go where the people are and you have to find a way to get them to care. And how do you break the cycle of not wanting to get care? So it, it takes that kind of innovation. You never thought that when we went to work on a project in Africa, we talked to the medical school, but mainly we had to talk to the university. We needed people from nursing, and we needed people from uh, social science, we needed people from law, we needed them from economics, we needed them from every part of the system, public policy. And when we went, architecture, we went together and we talked about what they looked like, what that hospital in Africa looked like. And we talked about what the system, what NYU was going to try to do there. And that's exactly the way you've got to solve problems. No one can be left out of the system. No grant can work without it. Otherwise, it fails because we don't have all the people's perspectives. You have to do a lot of this as an anthropologist would. And you can't do it as a doctor pretending mm -hmm. to know an awful lot. Mm -hmm. You need other people to be able to tell you what, from their perspective, is the relevant issue. So that's a big change in the way I would say I'm able to think right. today through this process of a real integration with, you know, School of Global Health and this population health effort. So. Gotcha. One trait that I always was so impressed with was you would have people working on things they didn't realize that, well, two things really. One is just about teaching and learning. I tell this to my wife, Danielle, that the thing about Dr. Goldfrank and his teaching is you're learning and you don't realize you're learning something yet, or you don't realize he's teaching you something when you're doing something. And that was something special to me. And there are so many lessons that I remember just putting the side rail up on something so basic, putting the side rail up on, on a patient's bed and, and why would we do that, right? And the other thing is really getting you inspired to take action, to do something in an area that you never realized you would care about. And I think many of your residents end up having careers based on not realizing that that's something that they're gonna ever be interested in and you inspire that in people. And I think that's a really incredible skill that you do without telling people what to do, but more of inspiring people to it's do trick, things. I think that, yeah. but that's, the, you ask them, do you want to do something consequential? Not everybody's gonna mm. know what they wanna do that's consequential. Right. I mean, 
I didn't know. I mean, no one knows about what, what should you really focus on. So we opened up emergency medicine as a, uh, you know, an environment without borders. Right. And you want people, if they love their work, they'll find something. There's something that bothers you in the world that's enough to spend mm. time on it. So find it and look at every patient you've got and say, what's wrong with the world that allowed this to happen? Mm. And then it allows people to move in a fashion that is creative for them because then it's something that no one else has ever thought about. Mm. No one else has ever solved it. So you can solve something that's consequential and it could be something that other people would consider minuscule that's remarkably important. I'm gonna move to some, what I'm gonna call rapid fire questions. They're not supposed to be fast, but kind of wanna dig in a little to your philosophy, ideology, or really kind of just your day-to-day and some other ideas. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old or 30-year-old self? I think you have to do something that's meaningful and you have to find that out. And the only way if you don't, if you're in a profession, you know, to find out what medicine is. I mean, medicine, I thought I knew what medicine was me when I got to Johns Hopkins. That obviously the social crises were too great to concentrate on the things that they thought were consequential. I was concentrating, I thought, on the things I thought was consequential, were consequential. I went to Europe, was a little more focused, and there were a number of stimuli that led me to do what I was doing. So that if you want to do something, let's say you want to do medicine, the tasks of tomorrow will be unknown to us today because everything can become a specialty or everything can become part of a specialty. You might just like taking care of patients, and that would be wonderful because there are an awful lot of people that need wonderful individuals to spend time with them. On the other hand, you can't be a doctor and see things that we see and not feel that you have to change it. There's no mm-hmm. sense that you can wait for everybody's cardiac arrest to come and mm-hmm. do some pounding on it and have mm-hmm. 97% of the people considered mm-hmm. dead. You could go into organ donation and take those mm-hmm. people and go on to, we tried that project, mm-hmm. but you got to change society's yeah. belief. Yeah. Yeah. If you go upstream and you find out how you're going to do this, it was so easy to train myself that just by organizing when this ambulatory care center across the street from Morrisania, you know, there was a neighborhood family care center. It was open the year I went to, I was the associate director of the ambulatory care center. There was a woman named Mucha San Augustine was the director. And we made sure that every patient who had one of those basic diseases got into the clinic. And every child that didn't go back to the emergency room, every child went to that clinic and got in to see somebody. They had to get in. And the doctors floated back and forth and the nurses, nurse practitioners did and the residents and the students did between the two sites. We made it an ambulatory care rotation. That could have been a specialty. It wasn't gonna solve the real needs or the grave needs when you cleared out a lot of people who didn't have to be there and you got them the right care. And there were fewer people who had came in with strokes or with whatever we had bad asthma. You could right. focus on all the other people who were coming in who had different kinds of problems that really had to be addressed by a better performance of emergency care. And how do you take care of abscesses or how do you teach people about the process or it was basics. What should you do? Who should be immunized? You know, what should you do? Do you stop at just diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus, or do you give influenza in the emergency department, or should you give HPV to everybody who doesn't have that, or you should? What should you do? Hepatitis A, B. I mean, you get them in the clinic, get those things done. You had to do these things. Who was going to give thiamine? Who became a standard? Everybody had to get thiamine, and you know, it's hard to convince people. They still don't do it sometimes. They still, you know, and it's just the inability of some of these simple public health gestures to be uh, established so that we don't see Wernicke Korsakoff any longer. I saw it every week, several times a week. Someone couldn't move their fourth nerve right. or sixth. They, just, right. they had terrible disease, so they couldn't think. I don't see that anymore mm-hmm. because there's enough people doing it enough of the mm-hmm. time. 
and getting to it. And you know, when first people would say, what's the best treatment for an alcoholic who comes to the emergency department? Well, if he's awake, give him a good hot meal mm -hmm. because he's malnourished. And then he'll get some thiamine or give him some thiamine. Mm -hmm. What's the best treatment for a homeless guy? Get him a home. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not write a prescription for that. Mm -hmm. That would be the best thing to do. I mean, what we're doing is uh, compromising what's necessary. Mm -hmm. When you think of a successful person, who comes to mind? There are lots of successful people. There are, ma there are many people who go away from having done this experience and who do great jobs. They can be happy doing medicine and decide they want to stay in a, an institution where people wouldn't get great care if they weren't drive, want a vision to care for people. So you could name enormous numbers of people. There are lots of people who've gone on to be committed forever to the, the process of doing good work. You could say, a worker, Phil Weaver's mm -hmm. working on hypertension. You know, this woman, Maria Raven, is in uh, mm -hmm. working on in San Francisco doing mm -hmm. the same thing she did here. Grants, a number of things that Kelly Duran has here working in mm -hmm. this environment. Toxicology, you know, Bob Hoffman's been at the Poison Center for uh, 30 years, 40 years almost now. It's a uh, commitment uh, to working on a problem that's in the public service. You know, we have a guy named Dan Lugasi who tries to teach every single day about universal health care as something that's essential. I mean, I think people are uh, devoted to the values, the same values that I'd be devoted to. And, and you have so many people, you know, you can abandon spending as much time in a particular area that you've got a lot of great advocates for. That, you know, you talk to them about what's going on, but they, they know what to do. They have more evidence than uh, I had when I started working on it. Mm -hmm. and. I learn from them, and so that and we talk, and we have you know, lots to think about, different values and ideas. But I mean, so many people have gone off to do special things in areas uh, that are essential. You know, the, the guy who was here from Kuwait, mm. your class, Anwar, Anwar, yeah, uh, we still talk. You two still yeah. talk, yeah. So he's yeah. he's uh, doing setting up emergency preparedness yeah. in uh, Kuwait. So yeah. doing a great job. He had a tremendous battle over integrity That's right. of uh, who to pass her exams, whether yeah. the guy had to be good or he had to be the son of the head of the right. military, something like that. So everybody's got those, and you've got to have the capacity to say no. I think if you do a job in a place like this where there's so many value stresses, and you set good examples, people become. Uh, to recognize that that's the norm. I mean, I think you have to show that you can do it. And so this is a, you know, a cauldron for experience, and you'd like people to come out of it having a sense of how to get the job done, no matter where you go. You know, you have this guy, Lemery, was he in your yeah, class? Yeah, I know Jay. So he's working on the environment. Uh -huh. He and I talked recently, you know, every, everybody should be trained in environmental emergencies. And he, you could do it in the emergency room and say, who has a problem today that's related to the environment? The guy who's coughing when there's a smog, or the guy who's got frostbite, mm -hmm. or the guy who's got hyperthermia. You know, I mean, are we prepared? Whatever. You can take a host of things and you could train people from that perspective to look at the obvious causes. You're going to have to do something that's going to teach some of the resistors that this is a problem or a risk. Right. How many people are flooded out of their homes in this country today or who haven't closed hospitals, right. closed host of areas, just they're wiped out? Yeah. So I, th I think there's lots to use, uh, you know, in terms of uh, who's got lousy water. Why did we have lousy water? What's the quality in the rivers? You know, look at the Hudson River. You can swim in the Hudson River and get crabs again. Get Flint, yes. Flint, right, right. Yeah. All right. So, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift, <laughs> and why? I don't know that I, I'm. 
I was looking for one that I gave the people recently. See if I have it. I think it's called Strong Shadows. It's by uh, Abigail Zuger. Mm-hmm. She's a great writer. She was a resident. Not Strong us. Shadows. Strong Shadows. Scenes from an inner city AIDS clinic. Yeah. Abigail so, Zuger. Yeah. Did she, she wrote for the New York Times? She wrote for the New York Times. Yeah. She did a book yeah. review section That's for right. 20 years. Yeah. She's now on the Bellevue Association. She was a resident uh, here. Oh, then uh, she did infectious disease. And then she mm-hmm. did an ethics training. And, you know, she uh, talks about, these are talking about her patients that left an impact on her. So we gave that to uh, a number of residents a couple of times when they did some creative writing and they read the, the group. Mm-hmm. I gave them that book as an example of someone who was also nearby who did that. Mm-hmm. You know, and she has w- wonderful stories. You know, I think we gave to all the residents the Bellevue book by David Oshinsky. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other things we use, I mean, God's Hotel was a book by, a book by Victoria Sweet gave to a number of people, which is uh-huh. really, really about the almshouse in uh, San Francisco where people were sent when they couldn't solve the problems. And this doctor did slow medicine to look at the yeah. patients and found the terrible problems. So I think that there are lots of nice stories about physicians trying to solve tough issues. When we look around, you so we're sitting in your office right now. When you look around the office, there's some books on these bookshelves. I'm, I'm sure you have many, many more books in other places. But is there any book on your shelf here that you you kind of look at, you glance at, that serves as kind of um, some purpose or inspiration or you know, something to remind you of your work? Of your, I, 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 one book day. I didn't when I, when I was a kid, the, probably when I was 12 or 13, my mother used to give me The New Yorker mm-hmm. every month to read Bertrand Rocher. Mm. Really right. And his medical detective is certainly mm-hmm. something that I think about. Is really that a lot of those stories, he sat in the New York City Poison Center in the health department there and got stories as they came in. So that's something that I often read about in the New Yorker. You know, it really was a guy who looked at the world and tried to describe it. I think his father was a, an epidemiologist. He was a writer, pretty quiet guy. He didn't want to ever come to talk to us. Uh, lived out on Long Island, but he really had a lot of the first case of Lyme disease or the bad salicylate poisoning mm-hmm. from the poison center, mm-hmm. things like that. It really were nice reads and was a style that I think I used to uh, develop how we write the chapters in the textbook in the earlier part with a case and then with information relating to it and the evidence together. Now, I see you have Dreamland also. That's actually the book. So the front cover of Dreamland is Portsmouth, Ohio. I see. Wow. Okay. And when I work, it's, it's right where I, I stay, where I work, and I jog back and forth I there see. between shifts, and I took a picture of myself yes. at that exact location. Yeah. That, that's actually a fabulous book. Any one or two books that are just over the years that – that you've you've gifted or that you just really seem to be coming across i mean what pathologies of power or, or a- anything that comes to mind i don't know it depends mm-hmm. on different eras yeah yeah eras. absolutely I mean, you know we did yeah. a lot of books on uh, global health that yeah. we worked with uh, the last 10 years been spending a lot of time in ghana yep. and did a lot of reading and a really thoughtful approach to uh, trying to be thoughtful about the things we do anything non-medical specifically um, any works of fiction that really... Yeah. You know, the emergency physician, this Frank Heiler, did The Rite of Thirst, I think. And yeah. it's fiction, but it, it's mm-hmm. in the Himalayans, and it's really about um, sort of the unintended consequences of going to help people. And the person is, a child is injured, and how do you do things and yeah. lose a leg, and what? how do you intervene? Do you do good or do bad? And, right. and read that as, as one example of... Uh, 
Humboldt I read recently, you know, so it's a tremendous, uh, some books about earlier times and literally looking at it and thinking how people acted and, you know, sort of uh, often go back to reading about Darwin. I mean, just to uh, think about being uh, an outside thinker, you know, like the Camus, I always read a lot in English or French and go back to that, really thinking about it. Well, the first one I read was The Stranger and go back, periodically have reread that because it's... Um, they changed the title. I liked it. I never thought the stranger was the right term. They changed it to the outsider in one of the more recent translations. And it was someone looking on the world a little differently than others, and I often I could bond with that. But we've used the, I don't know, not in your era, but in the uh, 80s, when we were uh, trying to keep the department together in the midst of the AIDS mm -hmm. epidemic, brought the plague, and we talked about it, read it, many mm -hmm. people, trying to get a sense of balance about how to deal with the world and how to get the community together to help and solve the problem and understand it. And so, I think you had alluded to in the past, um, is, it, is it Sinclair Lewis? One of, yeah, one of The Jungle, favorite? sure. Yeah. I talk about that often. That I read as a young guy. Yeah. That was a very political guy. Right. But that was pretty simple, just about how bad mm -hmm. the Chicago meat markets can be. And mm -hmm. everybody had the occupational injuries they had. You know, either you saw that you sometimes had beef in there or pork, or sometimes you had rats in the food you're being served and right. the guys working in the pickle component where they ended up with the acidity or alkalinity depending on what they were right. working with being so much that they were injured themselves right. and what work was like so i think that's that's another great public health issue led to the fda you know yeah. so some people may look at you and and ask do you ever feel overwhelmed unfocused uh, you've never portrayed that right but being human it's only natural and so when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or maybe lost your focus temporarily, what's your self-talk? What do you do to, to kind of refocus your mind or come back to the center? I think by uh, the McCarthy episode taught me a lot mm. and um, getting kicked out of medical school mm -hmm. taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that most other things, you know, I had a battle with the dean who didn't mm -hmm. want to talk for years mm -hmm. and we had no common ground. And so... Mm -hmm. I think that what I learned in most of those experiences was that if you were doing what you believed was right, mm -hmm. you'd ultimately win. It'll happen. Mm -hmm. it just it takes enough time, and you have to think through, is, is this the right strategy or is this the right thing to believe in? And if it was, then my sense is that you always win those things. The concern about the way the government behaved with McCarthyism or how it still behaves is, is right. You've got to, you know, there just are uh, things that are simply obvious what's right and wrong. I mean, civil rights was right and the battle had to be. And it takes a, you know, people who were trained in racism for hundreds of years aren't going to change overnight. There, It's embedded in their culture, whether they're keeping up Confederate statues or how you do it, it'll change. But it takes a long time to change. Things are better today. You know, our classes are filled with uh, people of all colors and mm -hmm. stripes and faculty, and so it'll happen. You know, that I do use uh, Bertolt Brecht often, uh, the great burning books, poems. You know, you've got um, the honest thing. When you're in battle, you have to stay in the battle and offer, uh, you know, did your books be burned also, that you're an honest man and that makes a difference. And so that I would say they, uh, in general, uh, I can resolve most of these battles. These are battles of... Uh, human rights or battles of principle, you don't lose those battles. It's a delayed victory to some extent. I mean, the battles, are, you know, the death of my wife was uh, probably more difficult than my daughter at the mm -hmm. same time, more difficult than anything else. I, I didn't manage, I didn't, I stopped working for a number of months uh, while they were very sick. 
and uh, I came back to work slowly after that. And then I uh, I had lots to do to help take care of my other kids and mm -hmm. grandchildren. And uh, you know, my son-in-law was married to my oldest daughter, so I had lots to do. But I can do my work if I can focus with intensity on the job, and I can usually do that. I could usually do that. I couldn't do that while my wife was sick, nor for a while thereafter, and so I didn't do work. I worked on stuff like in a room like this or, you know, or teaching theory, but I didn't do much clinical work. And then I came back to do my clinical work, and that gave meaning and substance what I was working on. But, you know, my feeling was all they could do was fire me. They didn't have any weapons, so the threats of not promoting me or not giving us a department or not doing this or that, that was petty stuff that was ultimately going to be won. I mean, it's not, they could try to fire, but they didn't. This dean didn't fire me in great part because when I came from Einstein, I was a tenured associate professor because they did that at a very early stage. And it was based upon creating this emergency department effort, and the guy who was the chair pushed it through. So I was protected, and they did believe here, Farber believed that uh, being you could not fire someone who was tenured. Mm. And so that made the difference. Mm -hmm. He could hold your salary and things like that and make it difficult to function, but he couldn't fire you. So um, I had a job, and the city wanted me. I worked for the city, and I worked for the university, but the university wasn't cooperating, so I worked basically for the city. So it created an independent force, and so it, there was ways to do it. There, I mean, in those days, there was less integration of forces against you. Now it would be difficult. Can you talk about a failure of yours and how that failure, or, or maybe even an apparent failure, <laughs> set up for later success? Well, developing emergency medicine was a great uh, failure from the beginning because it was turned down. You know, I would push to have a, an academic department or to have a training or residency yeah. from the early 80s. It took until the 90s, and I had to present a proposal, and I had to do another proposal. And I went to the mayor, and I went to the governor, I went to the commissioner of health, I went to the head of the health and hospitals, I went to every faculty member who had a voting, the chairman of the medical board here, and everybody said we couldn't do anything, or they tried to do something, they couldn't do it, so I failed there continuously. And the, I said the emergency department in the 1980s, after I'd gotten together, I said the emergency department here was disgracefully small, it was unacceptable, it was dangerous. and. I think I went to the Office of Management Budget with a presentation. It was either 14 or 18 times I had to go. It was always, it was too big. You're asking for too big. Right, and by right. the time the AIDS epidemic had said, it's too small. And I said, I'll take it this time. <laughs> you know, so it just was rewriting things and redesigning and working with people. Started out, it was a $500,000 deal that they said it was too expensive. They wanted to do it for 250000 I said, that I'm not going to take. Right. That was the hospital then. By the time it was ready, you know, it was... It was an enormous amount. The other failures, like uh, getting a um, an academic department, um, you know, after we got the residency in '90 or '91, they wanted to say you could be a professor of medicine and surgery right. and anesthesiology and right. pediatrics or whatever you wanted, and we'd give you all four of those titles. I said I refuse to take that. I want only to be a professor of emergency medicine. So it took from the time we got a residency until we got a department was almost another 15 years, maybe 13 or 14 years. And the, uh, the guy, uh, Langone, who came to yeah. see us after the bombing of the World Trade right. Center, was said, I'm a real uh, ally of yours, and wow. you're doing wonderful things. He came with Giuliani, who I did not get along well with. Right. But he, this Langone, Ken Langone, said, yeah. you know, ultimately he would say, I like what you're doing. We should do it at the university. I said, I've tried to get them to do anything. They don't want to listen at all to having an right. academic program. 
So ultimately, the dean was, he would always say in a meeting and say, I'm to the right of Genghis Khan and you're to the left of Marx, but we agree this should be an academic department of emergency medicine. We want you to, did you, he'd always say did in Lang a big Go, meeting. Yes, and he'd say in public, you know, did you get promoted to professor yet? I said, no. Did you have an academic department? No, we haven't gotten that. And so he would continue to push and he pushed ultimately the deans to get it done. Wow. So he was very supportive of what we were doing because it was, this wasn't a political position. This was a practical position. Right. You know, we just, it was outmoded to refuse to have a department of emergency medicine. Right. So he came into the picture just because he, he was donating, right? He was, that's right. Well, he became the money. chairman. He came the, yeah. became the chairman of the board of trustees Langone, for NYU. Yeah. He's written two books about being a billionaire. Uh, built from scratch. I yes. think it's the Home Depot book. Yes. Or he's at least yes. in that book. Yeah. He, he was all. one of the founders of the Home Depot. Yeah, Home Depot. Uh, one of the early investors. And, and then he just wrote a book called something like Capitalism. Or yes. He likes every guy. every yeah. right-wing guy that's around. I mean, he likes him because he believes in capital, but he's, uh, yeah. he's exceptionally generous here. He's but, the guy who assured that there would be uh, free tuition for everybody here. Ah, uh, yes. You know, and he's the guy, he's treated a lot. So he has these tendencies. These, yeah, he's, these, he knows everybody. He's yeah. a good guy. He likes yeah. people. Gotcha. And he supported us uh, immensely. And would, without him, it would have dragged on forever. Wow. Dragged on for a long time. But those were all failures. And many people would, everybody gave me advice on those battles. They said, maybe if I were more cooperative or more pleasant to the yeah. people who took the other position. I said, you know, we're never going to win. People have battled forever for this. You know, they battled each other 15 years to get a residency and 15 years to get a department. Uh, on top of that, if we don't stand up for our principles, we lose them now in this battle. There's no, we will win at some point. We've made great progress. We're writing books. We're doing research. They wouldn't let us do any NIH work because the dean had to sign off on it. So we didn't have any rights to do a lot of stuff. So we did it through the health department, and we did it through other ways. So I was maybe more stubborn than I should have been. On the other hand, I think it, uh, I, I don't know the answer. It, yeah. Whether we could have gotten it. I mean, they maybe someone else, if I had resigned, could come in and they would have done it because they try to do for people a replacement something else. And they were looking for all sorts of people to find, find a way. I was too much of a thorn for the side of the old style of doing it. Is there ever a time where you feel like you should have compromised and didn't? Before you answer that, yeah. you, you know, from what I gather, you would probably say you never compromise your values and principles. There's never a time for that. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Uh, but maybe is there, you know, you, you alluded to this. You said maybe I was a little stubborn. Or was there ever a time? Well, people said I was, and I, that, yeah. that I should have compromised with them and take the faculty promotion that would help other people get a faculty promotion, or just it was okay to be part of the Department of X. There were a lot of battles with other departments that over the rights of what we had to do the resuscitations, mm -hmm. to do the trauma, mm -hmm. to do the things that had to be done. And by that point, emergency medicine progressed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, but there were many people of conscience were having big battles with their universities over this. You know, we wrote a paper, John Gallagher and I and mm -hmm. a couple other people when we were trying to do the, it, there, there was an inverse relationship between the academicity of a department, the height on the NIH yeah. award scale and the number of, the higher the NIH award scale, the lower the percentage of, of areas that had departments of emergency medicine. Right. You know, in places where there wasn't care of the most disenfranchised, they did much better than where there was a link to the needs of disenfranchised. It means a big change. You know, they didn't want 
academic departments of emergency management. They, they were going to lose. They were worried about losing the role of their residents in uh, emergency departments right. and the authority they had. I felt that was unethical to have them have authority. They didn't know what they were doing, and they weren't doing what was best for the people. They weren't communitarian. And so it was lots of philosophic issues, and they, were, they weren't going to give supervision to the people. If they had, after the Libby Zion case, they'd given supervision every place in hospitals, we'd be in better shape. It wasn't about the hours as much as it was about the supervision. People battled uh, on the fact that it was the hours, but it was really just the way... In emergency medicine, we won, and we accepted that we would have supervision 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one else did that, or very few people did in the beginning, and over time, that's occurred. But that was, but they weren't the same people. We were the same people who were working day and night. Right. They hired hospitalists in those other services to do it and weren't totally integrated in the system. So those are big battles. I mean, I was on the Libby Zion case for several years, and I spent a lot of time with it, and I was told categorically I should not participate. And just to uh, for people who, who may not know what the Libby Zion case is, can you just take a minute and just talk about... Libby Zion was the daughter of a affluent and prestigious husband and wife involved in New York City politics and journalism and lawyers, and a uh, child went in uh, to an emergency department at Cornell, uh, did not have any, just had interns and residents working, and went in with a fever, and they said she had an um, hysterical uh, agitation or something like right. that for a, a viral syndrome with hysterical overlay. And she came into the hospital and rapidly got inadequate treatment and ended up dying of hyperthermia, strapped to a bed, never having been treated. My next-door neighbor was the assistant district attorney for Robert Morgenthau. Mm -hmm. It's got John Freed, and so he came over we never really didn't talk much. He came over. He said he had a case. He wanted me to look at it with him. Mm -hmm. Read it. And I knew about it already. We'd yeah. heard about it a lot. And he wanted to have an advisor for the district attorney's office to look at it. And so I then spent, uh, he then drove me to work, back and forth to work for um, several months while the case was going on. I'd never gone by the train before and I'd never gone since, but I yeah. went with him and we talked at length about it. And Morgenthau was going to take it. Initially, the thought was that it would be a, a case of negligence by the House officers. My wow. sense was that this was a case of negligence by the system, mm. and it shouldn't be the people who are mm. blamed, but the, the, the system is to blame, right. and this, this has to be changed. And that led ultimately to a court decision that was along those lines. Mm. And would, we used the standards for the 911 committee that we'd established as physicians for the city of New York, what had to be done in an emergency department. Was this a criminal case? This, it would have started as this, a criminal case, yeah, and the okay, grand jury okay. took the position uh, that it was a it was I a see. failure of the system. Oh, right, right, okay. That led to then a two-year project uh -huh. with the Commissioner of Health of the state of New York, David Axelrod, formed a committee of about, I don't remember anymore, maybe nine or ten physicians from the state of New York, right. or there were maybe an administrator or an emergency nurse as well or something like that, and uh, chairs of medicine, deans, and a couple of people, maybe a from various services and ambulatory care, and I was the emergency physician. And that became the standards that the state established for hours and supervision by David Axelrod. So that was an amazing, but that was a maybe a three-year project right. working on it. But that changed uh, the world in mm -hmm. medicine and certainly many people's perspective and really the demonstration of the big issues in our healthcare system.
What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? This could be time, energy, money, something that you've invested in and has paid you back. Well, I don't know. I mean, you could say the, uh, there are only a couple of things to comment on. So investing in doing a good job is one thing that we've talked about at length, and that's certainly uh, you can't do it unless you can't, uh, if you don't do it well, and you don't delve as greatly as possible, you don't work with as many people imaginable in the world, you can't uh, do the things you're working on, and you can't be transformative in the world. So that was, to me, you know, having a family is, uh, and having living in the country, it was uh, critical for the growth and development of my kids and my wife and myself, and gave us a way to uh, live in the woods and to yeah. split all the wood that we had to do to heat the house or to grow all the fruit and vegetables that we had. And so it was an uh, old place, and... My kids learned to grow things a lot, and they learned to uh, cook a lot for my wife. And whatever we grew, we would cook and eat and rebuilt the houses that we lived in. And my kids, one became an expert in historic preservation and archaeology because of the things that the earth found metal detecting in the yard, coins from the mm -hmm. 17th and 18th centuries, and bottles and things like that. So either of those, they go hand in hand. Whatever you do, you've got to do well and got to do with... Uh, Involvement and so we all lived, you know, the kids the first house Croton and Austin we lived in we lived outside for the first year or year and a half because the house was unlivable But we lived on a porch even in the winter and snow, but they learned to love the place They liked it and they all worked on doing stuff We had several wood-burning stoves ultimately to make it work, but those were fun and those were uh, We could have our family experiences in solitude in the countryside and learn to enjoy what we were doing Is there something that that's true that? nobody agrees with you about something that you believe in that people don't agree with you or well i mean everybody has their values on a scale yeah. so i you know i've said it several times already i have a some would say a pathologic uh, optimism belief that you can always accomplish something i think uh, every patient has something to teach and learn every every problem has a solution and we just haven't found it yet and i think you get people who uh, who buy into that, who agree that, I mean, that we shouldn't have the world could be pretty idyllic place. Sometimes I feel, you know, I'm going to go home to the countryside. It looks idyllic. You can make it sort of work. And I think we should be able to do that. There are lots of people who are doing pretty well uh, with some much simpler environments that we have and enjoy what they're doing. And there are many ways to have a, you know, go with some guy in the, in the remote countryside of Romania or the remote countryside, but, you know, they have a house and they have something they do. And, you know, is education better or is it not? I mean, what is good and what is valuable for people? So each person we see has a different need. And if we, we have to find out what they need and maybe we can help them, maybe we can find the key to let them live a little better. I don't know. But I think that we'll do better. Maybe we have more heterogeneous staff, more sociologists or more social workers or more people who are trying to, I mean, if everybody's entitled to palliative care at whatever stage of their disease, we can alter the course of their relationship to this medical problem, we can do better. If we work on, you know, going back to finding people, mechanisms and places to live or better education about how to take care of their kids, maybe we can do stuff. People would say that's, you know, the socialization of everything we do. Well, the social, it really is everything we do is the socialization of the relationship to the world. I mean, many right. people either don't have a chance or don't have the capacity to uh, live the fullest of their lives, uh, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of poverty, sometimes out of abuse. I mean, right. th there are lots of problems, though. So I think things can be better for everybody 
we've got to find a way to do it. And if, if people had things a little better, the world would probably be a little better. But it takes time. Other than the walk uh, <laughs> to and from Grand Central Station, you chopping wood, you, you mentioned. I still work in the uh, garden. And, uh, but you've never formally exercised, have you? You get your exercise from... Yeah. The, I get useful uh, activities right. of doing something. So the walk or the, uh-huh. you know, or the raking of leaves mm-hmm. or going and digging in the garden and mm-hmm. transplanting stuff or cutting down branches. I have a, you know, do, moving a lot of stuff around. I don't know. In the old days, I mean, I did play. Uh, there was a tennis court near where I played. I used mm-hmm. to play tennis. I played, who knows, for a while. Mm-hmm. Stuff, I do a lot of hiking in the woods mm-hmm. uh, with grandchildren mm-hmm. or wandering and, uh, you know, discovering things, mm-hmm. looking for things. And I don't do anything. I certainly no formal exercise. I mean, get to, um, you know, when you're out doing stuff, you do a lot of lifting and pulling and things. So it's not as uh, organized a protection of your muscles. That's but. right. Probably the same things that, you know, so-called man was doing thousands of years yeah. ago. So. I, I like to do activities that are productive yeah. as opposed to. And I when I'm out uh, cleaning up, if mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, weeding or cutting down mm-hmm. stuff, it's very peaceful thinking. Mm. Relates to lots of things that I get up, you know, first thing in the morning before it's light and work at my desk doing something. And then when I go outside work in the yard, let's say on a weekend, all the things that I left that I hadn't solved, I really solve while I'm out there thinking. Very peaceful and uh, get other ideas that you wouldn't get. I mean, it, it's a treatment for uh, the chaos of the, to see the order of plants and animals doing their thing and yeah. you figure out. Oh, form of meditation. Yeah. It's your form that's of right. meditation. Right. Yeah. What about your diet eating habits? I don't think I've ever seen you eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> I eat every day. <laughs> yeah. Has your diet changed over the years? Do you stick to anything in particular? Um, you know, when you're in Europe, you have a lot of, uh-huh. you go to the market every single day. I used yeah. to go to the, with my kids before uh-huh. they went off to school. We went down to the farmer's market, uh-huh. which was a block and a half away. We picked up a lot of vegetables. We picked up, you didn't, we didn't have a refrigerator for a while, so you mm. picked, you get a piece of either fish yeah. or meat for the day. You always had fish, uh, fresh fish. You know, today I go to the, if I need vegetables, we go to the farmer's market on the weekend when I'm home, and uh, I get some fish for a few days, and I get some other, some meat, or just eat uh, nothing special. I go to the, my wife, Susan, used to make bread uh-huh. from scratch, learned in Belgium, we had, uh-huh. so it's all that. So now I go to, there's uh, someone who else is making good homemade bread. Nice place in Grand Central Station. Uh-huh. It's a Norwegian shop or Swedish shop, and uh-huh. it's tremendous bread, the same kind of bread that, Susan used to make, or you know, used to make baguettes, everything. Uh-huh. So you, you stick to uh, simple stuff. A lot of cheese of all sorts. I mean, being in Europe, you have uh, just a uh, hundred different remarkable cheeses, and probably a, a glass of Belgian beer is in good. Well, we may have some for after this uh, <laughs> after this interview. <laughs> what advice would you give to a smart, driven, maybe medical student or resident, kind of about to enter? the real world let's say maybe a resident who is finishing up residency not necessarily what advice would you give them i want to hear a little of that but also what advice should they ignore i think the thing i tell lots of people yeah. is that there's no way that the amount of money you get for the job is not going to help you very much mm. you have to enjoy the job you mm. have to feel it i think that to to avoid burnout and to avoid you, you have to have a passion for something. You really have to feel that this is the one of the luckiest jobs imaginable. You get to help people. 
you get to understand science, you get to understand people, you understand the world, and you get to be disgusted about the way it is, and you can change things. You have to find something that gives you remarkable pleasure. And it's available in medicine. It may not be the kind that you've ever been taught, but you've got to find a way to, to feel that it's exciting. Otherwise, it's, a, it's not going to be a good job for you. You're not going to be able to do a good job. You've got to get pleasure about talking to people about things that are meaningful to them and maybe not to you. It's got to be seeming meaningful to you. You've got to help and understand it. So, and I think we earn uh, a lot of money as doctors, and so that you don't have to take all that money, and you have to preserve that some of the time that you will be spending on it, you could do things that are really meaningful to you. So you try to tell people that sometimes a fellowship is very good for some people, sometimes a job, but to assure that you have enough time that you don't uh, injure yourself psychologically or physically by the amount of clinical work you're doing, so that you have some time to be doing something else that's really powerful for you. And there's no shortcut to that. You can't just because you can earn a lot of money. So it, it would be, you know, the way the university is giving everybody a free tuition. I mean, I think that at least should be in the country for everybody who's going to do addiction medicine or geriatrics or palliative care or primary care medicine or pediatrics because they're not, those jobs are essential, or the people working on uh, health manpower-deprived areas or Indian preserves at reservations. You have to, those jobs have to be filled, and we have to find a way to do that. Maybe those should always get free tuition, and then maybe whatever the new specialty that becomes vital for society to function. But the things, no one's doing geriatrics, not enough people doing palliative care or hospice work, or, you know, and addiction medicine is going to need a ton of people for the next 20 years. It's greatest need, and especially in demand. So you're going to need something special to do, and you'll feel good. You know, just the way, you know, this woman, Abby Zuger, who devoted her life to caring for people with AIDS. I mean, you had started out with a disease that was lethal, and she thought everybody's going to die in six months or three months, and she gave lots. She told me recently, you know, she gave a lot of people that had these chronic pain syndromes and were in terrible shape, gave them all opioids. And now they're all alive and they're yeah. dependent. She still gives them opioids because it's too late to withdraw right. them from the process. Yeah. But she was dealing with people, she thought, at the end of life. And now they're leading normal right. lives. Yeah. So they're great stories about things. Things will change. Yeah. I used to use a lot of naloxone in high concentrations. Now I use a lot of naloxone in low concentrations right. Right. because we went from people who were using heroin yeah. and an overdose or fentanyl uh, to people using methadone. And it's probably not the methanol that's brought them to the overdose. It's the mixed overdose. So there, there are things that even simple principles that you change over time. But you've got to have, a, you have an open mind and you have to do something that you really like. And the advantage of, for example, emergency medicine is that you can really do anything with it. But people who are looking for an easier way to do it, I think the only way that's fun is when you're really seeing the patients who are in desperate need. You can really feel good. Some days you're going to save people's lives. Some days you're going to begin the course of saving somebody's life. Someday you're going to just get to talk to the family, and you're going to do wonderful things. So there are a lot of ways to be happy about it. But it is demanding to keep up, and it is demanding to... But, you know, one of my greatest pleasures, I'm sure, is I'm in the emergency department tomorrow. And so I do it, and I like to go the same things I've always done. The only way I know how to do it, you know, is go and talk to the person and go and bring the person, the student and the resident to the bedside and look at something that was, we all missed the first time. I read that there's a um, quote by Abraham Lincoln that says, you can't escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. Yeah. That's what, I mean, uh, many people have said that. I mean, that's, yeah. 
you know, people are dying uh, and people are getting lousy care because of the way we do it or have done it. And we can do much better and yeah. we can do it in a way that's pretty exciting. And there are a hundred examples or a thousand examples of how to do it better in every place. So you've got to take some of those. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're just, uh, you know, that's what everybody, Martin Luther King followed up with it. You know, the, those who sit idly by right. uh, are probably more at fault than those who are the most aggressive right. against the values you have. Because those are the ones, those are the ones who tolerate Trump. Those are the ones who tolerate right. fascism everywhere. So right. it's, it's a matter of recognizing that action is essential. You'll never be satisfied if you sat by and some. I told the residents yesterday we were talking about misogyny. And, you know, the, the guy's talking about the fact that I have seen people. I One guy sitting over there was in a fraternity or a club. Yeah. And he saw people saying bad things right. about women. Yeah. And he didn't stand up. Someone said, another said, how can you stand up all the time? Well, if you don't do it, then some young woman's going to be abused. You know, and every time you do it, you're going to have one less person because they're going to respect you and you're going to defend it and you're going to mm. say it's inexcusable. And it does force you to be aggressive towards other people sometimes. But there are times, you know, just as maybe I told you or as many other people, it's not acceptable to call that young woman sweetie mm -hmm. or grandmother sweetie. Mm -hmm. it's, or that's Mrs. Jones to mm -hmm. you. Everybody's got to be respected and starts at every single action you do. It's trying to get people to the highest level of their performance. And they can feel better about themselves that way. So we're teaching class all the time. And you're, you know, you're setting an example. Everything you do is being watched by other people. And so that you want to be able to talk a lot to people. So that they see how you think. And so that you change them. Because the people who come, go through an experience like this, have great opportunities to uh, set an example to make the world a little better. Well, with that, we'll uh, wrap this up and... I could say that the education continues for me 15 years later in the same office that it started in my medical career here at uh, Bellevue. I want to thank you, Dr. Goldfrank, for the time today. It was really incredible. This is something that I've been dreaming of doing for, for many, many years. I'm privileged to be able to sit here with you uh, and talk and, and hear all of those insights and thoughts. And I started off talking about the impact you've had. It's one of those things. It's like Newton's law of inertia, right? Once it's in motion, once you put your ideals in motion, uh, they stay in motion. And I know that all of the residents that, that you've set in motion uh, are out there doing good work and living and trying to live uh, to standards that, uh, that you've set for all of us. And it's something that I know uh, we're most proud of uh, it's something that I suspect you are very proud of. And every day I know that, well, you should know every day that there are people like me, there are hundreds and, and thousands of people like me who pull from their heart and their soul kind of lessons that you have taught them. And it could be someone who's 25. It could be who's starting off uh, residency or in medical school. It could be someone who is 65 or 70. I had lunch with Susie Vassallo a month or two ago, and uh, invariably we talked about all many of the lessons that, that you taught us. So anything that you wanted to say or touch on that, that we didn't cover? This was a pretty extensive uh, conversation, and maybe we do a part two. Uh, we'll see. Maybe over some, some European cheese and <laughs> Belgian beer. Sure. Otherwise, I, uh, I just want to thank you for this time. It's a pleasure.
good. It's good to hear positive things about what we're trying to do. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.